You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 406. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 30th of December, 2019. Today's episode, the crew of an Air Asia flight didn't follow proper procedures when their engine started failing. An American Airlines mechanic pleads guilty to tampering with an aircraft. More news, your feedback, and another edition of Plane Tales. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 406 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger Stern. He's an Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast. We've been, or I've been doing this for about 10 years now, a little over that, covering the latest aviation news, answering your feedback. And uh, I'm Captain Jeff, former U.S. Air Force pilot and currently a captain for a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, which I like to refer to as ACME. Airlines. And joining me is from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, farmer, farmer, I didn't know he was a farmer, a former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Who are, I may not be clever, but I can drive my tractor. That's good. said Farmer Giles. Lovely to be with you, Jeff, uh, and this uh, small crew version. Uh, I think we're, we're working our way down to one pilot operations. Isn't yeah. that going to be the case soon? Oh, I don't know. You never know. It, it, it could come full circle, right? Could uh, be. Before you know it, I'll be doing the show by myself again, all by myself, <laughs> all by myself. Anyway, we do plan on our other co-hosts joining us later on in today's broadcast. So hang in there if you don't mind. But in the meantime, while we wait for them to join us, let's uh, get started right away with today's news. Stand by for news. From the ATSB.gov.au, so the Australian Transportation Safety Board, the flight crew of an AirAsia X Airbus A330 did not follow proper procedures when faced with an engine oil pressure warning, attempting to restart the affected engine even after it had failed, as well as electing to divert to Melbourne when the aircraft was considerably closer to two other airports. 
The engine oil pressure warning and subsequent engine failure occurred during a 16 August 2016 scheduled flight from Sydney to Kuala Lumpur with two flight crew, eight cabin crew, and 234 passengers on board while in cruise near Alice Springs, which I believe, um, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, that's over there on the uh, the western coast of the uh, continent. Alice Springs is just about plum center. Oh, in the center. Okay. Yeah, yeah slap bang, more or less. Yes. Okay. But that's a big, it's a big continent. So uh, yeah, still had quite some time to go, I guess. Yep. Uh, the flight crew received an engine two oil low pressure failure alert message, which the ATSB's subsequent investigation of the event established was due to a shaft failure in the engine's oil pressure pump. Oh, so it was like a no kidding, low pressure indication. Uh, that alert required immediate crew action comprising of reducing thrust on the affected roll or reducing thirst on the affected Rolls Royce Trent 700. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> well, I guess if you do reduce the thrust, it does reduce the thirst as well. T H U R S T, a new word. Um, on the Rolls Royce Trent 700 engine to idle, and then in accordance with the Airbus procedure, quote, if the warning persists, shutting down the engine. So uh, apparently it did. Um, procedures need to be designed with clarity. However, the flight crew probably misinterpreted the term persists as requiring they wait a certain period of time to determine if the condition was persisting. As a result, they continued to troubleshoot the failure rather than shut down the engine. Mm. Man, I think I would have gotten that thing shut off quickly. Well, yeah, I'm wondering what on earth kind of troubleshooting you can do. Uh, you can look at the oil pressure gauge, but that's it. That's all the troubleshooting you can do. Send really. somebody out there to the engine and open up the hood and see what's going yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Put your dipstick in. It's about the expression. Yeah. What do you guys call that? You call it a dipstick? Yeah, we do. Yes. Oh, good. Amazing. Uh, after, we found a terminal. Yeah, well, something problem. we have in common. That's Wow. <laughs> Uh, after monitoring the engine, the flight crew performed or informed the view that the warning was a result of a gauge failure. Okay. Really? With the intent of further uh, troubleshooting, the crew then increased the engine's thrust. <laughs> this led to the engine stalling and ultimately failing. Yeah, duh. However, yeah. despite evidence to the contrary, the flight crew determined that the failed engine was not damaged and could be restarted. What? Uh, consequently, and contrary to the operator's procedures, the flight crew made two attempts to restart the failed engine, even though there was no there was no safety risk to the aircraft that demanded a restart attempt. Both attempts attempts failed. So basically, uh, they they took an engine that could probably be repaired pretty easily to <laughs> destroying the engine. Yeah, and uh, wrecked it. Yeah. Uh, what were they thinking? I don't know. Also, I wish I wish I could have a chat with them because you do wonder what was going through the captain's mind. Why, why on earth he thought he could get an engine with no oil pressure going again? I don't know. Well, you know, when he he thought it was just a gauge, even though everything else was supporting the fact that it's not a gauge, it's it's the real deal. You you don't have engine oil pressure anymore. Do not operate the engine. Uh, it says also contrary to the operator's procedures, the flight crew elected to divert to Melbourne following the engine failure rather than to closer suitable airports in Alice Springs and Adelaide. Although twin engine airliners such as the A330 are designed to fly safely on a single engine, this decision increased the time that the aircraft was operating in an elevated risk environment of single engine operations. And so the report goes on to uh, talk a little bit more about these bad decision 
the bad decision making. And uh, let's see, it, follow, it closes with since the incident, Air Asia X restated the operational requirements for flight crews for engine restarts and diversion decision making. Further, the airline has also used the occurrence as the basis for a training package for responding to engine failure, restarting failed engines, and diversion decision making. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of bad decisions made right there. But you know, if one engine has failed, now you only have one source of power to keep that airplane flying. And you know, it's best to get the airplane on the ground to a suitable airport. Yeah, uh, hence the wording on your warning panel, which will be uh, land as soon as possible. Yep. Oh, your panel uh, actually says that. I believe so, yes. Oh, I can't remember exactly the wording now, but uh, mm-hmm. it's either land as soon as practicable uh, or land as soon as possible. One or the other will yeah. come up. Um, and, of course, they, in order to get all the way down to Melbourne, which is just about as far as Sydney, they could almost have gone to either, uh, they had to go past Adelaide. Now, Adelaide's a pretty impressive airport. It's a fine airport. You can get in there, and there's all sorts of maintenance stuff. So that wouldn't be a problem. But, of course, just up the road, had they continued for a fraction of the distance, they could have thrown it into Alice, which is not the biggest of airports, but it will certainly handle a 330 uh, and without any problem. And um, I suspect it would have been a bit hot, but actually there's plenty of tourist hotels and things around, so you can find somewhere for your passengers to stay usually, and uh, they should have no trouble flying spares into there, flying an engine in if they needed to. But, uh, yeah, I, I do have to question quite a few decisions the crew make here and go, mm, no, it wasn't your uh, brightest day, guys. No. Yeah, I think all of the, the professional airline pilots listening to this and others of you are thinking, huh, what? Why did they make that decision? Just scratching our head there. But, okay. Well, you know, happy ending for the uh, passengers, at least. And I'm sure that the crew got a little bit of a debriefing regarding this. I suspect they did. Yes. All right. Next in our news folder, uh, an update. Uh, We talked about this on an earlier show. Um, American Airlines mechanic pleads guilty in airplane tampering incident. A former American Airlines mechanic pleaded guilty on Wednesday to a charge of attempted destruction of an aircraft that was scheduled to depart from Miami with 150 people on board. Uh, his name is Abdul Majid Marouf Ahmed Alani, uh, 60, 60 years old of Tracy, California, admitted that on July 17th, he tampered with the air data module system of an aircraft at Miami International Airport that was scheduled to depart for Nassau, Bahamas. Um, he faces t- uh, up to 20 years in prison. A lawyer for Alani who remains behind bars. I don't think the the lawyer is the uh, the. Yeah, I was going to ask why his lawyer was <laughs> some some <laughs> other problem that he was having. I guess uh, did, he was just drinking too much. Yep, yeah, did not immediately respond to a request for comment um, on the day of the flight. While uh, number one for takeoff or taking the departure runway, the flight crew increased power to the engines in preparation for takeoff, which resulted in an error reading by the aircraft's computer, and the takeoff was aborted. Prior to the aircraft scheduled takeoff, Alani had inserted a foam substance into the ADM system and used superglue to hold the substance in place. American Airlines said in a statement that after it learned about the allegations, we inspected aircraft that Mr. Alani had worked on to ensure that they were safe. Safe. His conduct is not representative of the world-class work performed every day by our 15,000 technical operations safety professionals. 
Uh, when law enforcement officials interviewed Alani after his arrest, he claimed he was upset over stalled labor talks and that he had tampered with the aircraft, hoping that a delay or cancellation would lead to overtime work. The ben- the bonus is that he, kn- he knew exactly what the problem was. So it wouldn't take him long to fix the airplane, right? Now, there was, uh, when we talked about this um, originally, uh, they had not yet at that point ruled out um, a possible terrorist act. But uh, it looks like here now it's more of a personal thing on his part rather than a trying to, you know, kill 150 passengers. Yeah, I gather there have been some fairly acrimonious um, labor relations between uh, the airline and the engineers, uh, which have been going on for a very long time now. Uh, um, is it, do you know if that's been resolved yet, Jeff? I do not. No, neither do I. But uh, yeah. uh, it's always sad, uh, you know, even in the most dire of circumstances, uh, if you're having bad relations with your wife or your company, uh, you should never uh, uh, tamper with things and make aircraft unsafe. It just goes without saying. But yeah. we rely on trust so much in this industry. Um, we rely even in the worst circumstances on everyone uh, who does work on our aircraft uh, to be trustworthy. Uh, otherwise, the whole system kind of breaks down. Yes. So true. All right. Uh, item C. You'll remember back in February of this year, there was a, a horrible crash of a 767 freighter uh, operated by, um, well, uh, Amazon Prime Air, but uh, they are, um, most of those uh, flights, I think, are operated by Atlas, uh, Atlas Pilots. Um, and I don't know if this is the actual final report or is just the release of the docket, I believe. I think they're still in the investigatory process and possibly getting close to uh, issuing a final report on this on this crash. Um, so um, just to remind you, uh, the first officer at the controls of an Amazon air cargo flight that crashed in Texas near Houston um, appeared confused crying out that the plane had stalled during the final moments and putting it into a deep or a steep dive while the captain tried to pull the plane's nose up. Fact-finding reports released by the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board on Thursday suggest. The NTSB says that the first officer failed proficiency evaluations during his training at Atlas Air, which operates Amazon Air Flights, and at his prior job at Mesa Airlines. He also washed out of training at two other airlines, which he concealed, which he concealed, when he applied for work at Atlas, claiming that that uh, that he had been doing freelance real estate work and taking college classes during that period of time. The NTSB released over 2,000 pages of documents from its investigation into the February 23rd crash of Atlas Air Flight 3591, bound from Miami to Houston, which killed all three on board. It has not yet issued conclusions about how or why the crash occurred. Nonetheless, the factual reports raise questions about training and pilot monitoring at Atlas Air at the time when it, uh, at a time when it and other cargo carriers and small passenger airlines are struggling to attract and retain pilots amid a mounting shortage. The Boeing 767 was descending on approach to landing at George Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston when the first officer, Conrad Aska, or Aska, said that the primary flight display wasn't working properly on his side, and transferred control to the captain, uh, Ricky Blakely. He later said that there was a problem with the attitude director indicator horizontal situation indicator, 
Uh, we call that the uh, ADI slash HSI, which tells pilots what the plane's angle is relative to the horizon. Captain Blakely gave control back to Asuka after they believed that the indicator was working properly again. And I believe if you look into the details there, there are ways for if a display on one side, let's say the first officer's displays are not working properly, you can usually uh, switch both sides of the cockpit to the same source so that you can restore the uh, display on the other side. And the thing you have to keep in mind, of course, is that now you don't have dual um, separate uh, sources for these uh for these systems. But uh, I think that's what they did. They, they went through and they kind of troubleshot a little bit very quickly to uh, restore the displays on the FO side of the cockpit. Um, so uh, the captain gave the FO um, the, uh, air, the control of the air, airplane back to him. They began to prepare the plane for their approach as they maneuvered around a rainstorm. The plane hit turbulence and then five seconds later, a minute before impact, the automatic go-around switch was turned on, which is intended to be used when pilots seek to abort a landing. It automatically increases thrust to enable a 2,000-foot-per-minute climb. However, the activation may not have been intentional. The pilots made no, no mention of initiating a go-around. NTSB investigators suspect Asuka may have become disoriented while the plane was in cloud cover, with the acceleration from the increased thrust tricking him into perceiving that the plane's nose was too high, leading him to believe the plane was stalling. Six seconds after the go-around switch was activated, he pointed the plane's nose down at a sharp 49-degree nose-down angle. The first officer expressed surprise about the plane's speed, according to a transcript of the flight voice recorder. Whoa, where's my, where's my speed, my speed, followed by the sounds of thumping in the cockpit. We're stalling, stall. So they have a lot of speed, but he thinks they're in a stall. Okay. Um, the flight data recorder shows Blakely, the captain, beginning to pull up on the yoke on his side, while the FO is still pushing the yoke down and pointing the nose of the plane down. With Aska only joining the captain pulling up after the plane descended through the bottom of the cloud cover at around 30,000, excuse me, 3,500 feet. In the final moments, Aska says, Lord have mercy. A captain for Mesa Airlines, Sean Archuleta, who was catching a ride in the jump seat, shouts, pull up. Then Aska says, oh God, Lord, you have my soul. The plane's last recorded airspeed was a blistering 433.5 knots. And security camera footage shows it was descending at a steep angle when it dove into a swamp two miles from Anuak, Texas. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right or not. Anyway, um, let's see. Keith Mackey, a Florida-based flight safety consultant and former airline pilot and crash investigator, cautions that the information released by the NTSB is preliminary. Uh, but he says it paints a picture of an unprecedented breakdown of communication between two pilots who were operating at cross-purposes. A quote from him says, I've never heard of a situation where one pilot was pulling on the yoke and another was pushing on it and they weren't discussing what they were doing. Well, that Air France uh, 447 kind of comes to mind. Um, they obviously wouldn't have been able to feel the other person doing something in opposition to what they're doing. But in, isn't that the case in that situation as well, that uh, one on one side was trying to push the nose down and the first officer was still pulling full back on his stick. I know it's not exactly the same situation because we're talking about uh, fly-by-wire control systems and no feedback and that kind of thing. 
Well, I believe um, at one point the other pilot did try to counter the nose-down pitch that uh, um, the handling pilot was putting in, but since he failed to press the takeover button, it didn't work. Uh, it would have had no effect. Well, yeah. it, it would have summed. Uh, the air, okay. aircraft did start to slowly level off. If he had gone full back stick, the other pilot still had full forward stick, you'd end up with uh, commanding level attitude. Um, it's because they, they are, it's like a plus and a minus. Um, but this, this for me, it is an interesting uh, point you raise. Uh, everyone said uh, that having control yokes on the side of the cockpit so uh, that you can't see and aren't linked uh, are a real disadvantage in comparison with yokes right in front of you and you can see and feel what the other guy's doing. Apparently not in this situation because despite the fact that they had their control yokes and they're physically connected to each other, they still managed, one pilot still managed to dive the airplane into the ground. You would have thought that in this case, if you had felt that the other person was doing something in opposition, that you would say something, and apparently nothing was said. So, yeah. um, so the yeah. only advantage of uh, I can see in this situation of the Airbus uh, flight control system is that a simple pressing of a button overrides what the other pilot's doing. So if the captain had wanted to take control because he realized the other pilot was making a mistake, a press of the takeover button on his stick, and he would have completely turned off the first officer's control inputs, and he could have flown the aircraft just by himself. And, of course, the Airbus won't allow a pitch down of that uh, degree. Uh, it will limit the pitch down to only 30 degrees. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, at that point, um, it starts to uh, counter the pilot's input because it says there, there are no right. situations when the yeah when you should be doing this. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it, an Airbus might not have ended up in the same situation. Yeah, I'm I'm not trying to muddy up the situation here. Um, you know, just uh, it just came to mind that he said he couldn't think of any other case when pilots were putting in opposite controls and not saying something about it. And I'm thinking, well, no, I, no, I can think of some other, you know, yeah. cases of that kind of thing, um, which is kind of perplexing. But, you know, we weren't there at the moment. Um, a lot of confusion, apparently. I, I have been on an airplane um, as a flight engineer uh, when um, engines didn't respond as quickly as they should have. And we got a little slow. And when the rush of the three engines started kicking in, in IMC, you definitely get that feeling that the airplane is doing some odd, unusual um, you know, type of maneuver, and you get that uh, it, it messes up with your head uh, with the uh, sudden acceleration. So I could see um, why you might get that feeling. On the other hand, uh, there's a reason why we have these instruments in front of us, and we are taught from early on to trust them. You have to disregard the feelings that you're experiencing and, and you have to trust your instrumentation. And uh, if he had looked down and saw that he was not indeed super nose high, he wouldn't have forced the uh, yoke down so severely in my opinion. But anyway, going back to the report, why, why do you yeah. think he pressed the toga button? Well, so. so here, this, the next paragraph kind of addresses oh, okay. that we'll among out. the questions investigators will seek to answer whether Oscar accidentally palmed the go-around switch while reaching for the throttle or intentionally activated it and whether the attitude indicator he had previously complained about was still malfunctioning, uh, adding to his confusion. Um, 
So they're still trying to figure all that stuff out. And another uh, another source of information, not official, that I, I had heard that uh, it's possible that the captain may have accidentally activated the go-around switch when he was um, kind of reaching around to activate uh, the flaps and slats. But again, okay. I don't know. I, I haven't had time to look at this entire um, docket of information that, that was published to see if that is one of the possible uh, scenarios there. But they're still trying to work that out. The thing that really, well, in, in addition to the uh, perplexing way that the crew handled this situation is the setup, I guess you'd say. You know, we talk about accidents and the Swiss cheese, uh, holes in the Swiss cheese aligning and all that kind of stuff. Apparently, um, the first officer had a, a very, very poor uh, training and evaluation um, history. And, and also the captain, not maybe quite as bad as the first officer, but uh, I'll read a little bit of, of this here. Um, Oscar, the first officer who was 44, joined Atlas in 2017 from the regional airline Mesa, where he had failed to win promotion to captain on uh, the Embraer 175 regional jet after being given unsatisfactory rating in two flight simulator sessions. Two Mesa captains who evalu- evaluated him told the NTSB that he would get flustered when he encountered unexpected situations in training. Uh, he would make frantic mistakes and would start pushing a lot of buttons without thinking about what he was pushing. He uh, also failed to finish training at two other U.S. airlines. He left Air Wisconsin after four months of training to be a first officer of a Bombardier CRJ regional jet. The NTSB says that he cited personal reasons. In 2011, he resigned after a month at Commute Air due to lack of progress in training to become first officer of of a de Havilland Canada-8 regional turboprop. He failed to list his stints at Air Wisconsin and Commute Air on his employment application at Atlas, um, so they were not aware of it. Uh, With that information, we would not have offered him a position, the NTSB quotes the executive as saying. So this is an interesting thing. After the 2009 Colgan Air crash, Congress required the Federal Aviation Administration to set up a clearinghouse, including FAA and employer records on pilots to aid carriers and vetting them, but has yet to complete the process. That was, what is taking so long? I know that's I I, that blew me away when I read that. I thought what I thought that was in place. Apparently not. That's a worry. Yeah. Okay. So Oscar gets hired by Atlas and um, let's see, he did not go smoothly. He was required to undergo four and a half hours of remedial instruction before he could take an oral exam. And then he was held back for four additional hours of remedial training on a fixed base simulator before he was allowed to proceed to training on a full flight simulator. Uh, Let's see. After two sessions, a fellow student he was paired with complained that Asuka was holding him back and his instructors decided to restart his full flight simulator training from the beginning. He failed his practical 767 type rating examination, the NTSB says, due to unsatisfactory performance in crew resource management, threat and error management, non-precision approaches, steep turns, and judgment. So after all that remedial training, he passed. And uh, so now you kind of have an idea that, you know, it wasn't the best pilot at the base. Um. Also, the uh, 60-year-old captain, Blakely, was enrolled in the Proficiency Watch program uh, at Atlas in 2015 after he initially failed to win his 767 type rating. 
According to Atlas Air instructor comments, he was not recommended due to overspeeding the flaps during stall recovery, consistently failing to set missed approach altitude and missed approach procedures. Uh, he completed remedial training and was awarded a 767 rating later in that year. So it looks like it was a little bump in the road for him, not a major record of failure. Uh, so no, I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, make a big thing out of failing to get the flaps up in a stall recovery. Right. Uh, you know, your your primary job there is to stop the aircraft stalling. Yeah. If you accidentally overspeed the flaps in the recovery, then, well, fair oh, enough, well. but you're safe. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the other bits and bobs are procedural. And, you know, you wonder what kind of a workload he was in to fail to set Mr. Bridge altitude, but uh, people can just learn to fix that. It doesn't sound like he had a major handling or instrument uh, no. um, reading problem, unlike his first officer, who seems to be a bit of a disaster. Yes. Yes. It, uh, very sad. Very sad. Um, so that's what we have um, so far with their investigation and the release of the 2,000 plus pages of uh, material they have so far. And uh, it'll be interesting to see the final report and the conclusion that they make regarding this. But uh, and interestingly, Atlas did have that program, um, the, um, I forget what the name of it is now, the uh, Proficiency Watch program. And the NTSB was kind of scratching their heads uh, why uh, they didn't put the FO on the FAA-mandated six-month Proficiency Watch program. And uh, Atlas's uh, fleet captain for the 747 and 767 told NTSB investigators that he chalked up the pilot's poor performance to nervousness and considering the gaps in his training and family issues he was experiencing, decided to just keep an eye on his performance. Of course, you know, they didn't realize that he had been to two other airlines and had basically no. failed to, you know, get it done. Isn't a, I don't know what a proficiency watch program is, but it sounds like it is the same as keeping an eye on his performance. So right. why not put him in the program? At least you formalized it then and... Uh, you know, made sure that he doesn't slip through the cracks. They probably wish now that they had. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Oh, boy. Well, what a mess. What a mess. It is. Uh, but, I mean, a totally mishandled uh, problem by the looks of it. Yeah, sounds like it. All right, moving on. Um, item D in the news folder. A 16-year-old teenager tried to steal a Vueling aircraft at Paris Orly. Not another one. Yes. What are these teenagers getting up to nowadays? I don't know, but apparently the flight simulator uh, video games are just not proving to be as uh, realistic as they're <laughs> yeah. desiring. And so they want to do the real thing. Um, yeah. So this 16-year-old was arrested after being found on board an aircraft back in June at Orly. Uh, since the arrest, the adolescent has been in detention. According to sources, the young man wanted to return home after having lived in a, a few months on the street in the Paris region. Uh, this is the, the quote that's my favorite of this news article. This is from his lawyer. His idea was to take the plane, not obviously to steal one. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. Okay. Isn't that the same uh, thing? If you're going to take the plane, that's kind of. If you're taking something that doesn't belong to you, isn't that the definition of stealing? <laughs> right? Yes. I'm not a lawyer, yeah. but okay. Yeah. Anyway. Well, this guy is, so he obviously knows what he's saying. Obviously. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Still managed to pass all the controls. I guess they mean security controls without uh, anyone knowing how. 
The man is suspected to have climbed a wall, but everything is still very confused. After trying to get into a first plane, the teenager managed to slip into the cockpit of an empty Airbus A321. That's the one he was trying to borrow, not steal and installed himself at the controls of the aircraft. A maintenance technician discovered the teenager pushing certain buttons. Policemen had difficulties trying to arrest the Moroccan as the young man refused to give in, placed in police custody. He also did not want to submit to DNA sampling. What, did he have a choice? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it must be being very nice to him is all I can think. <laughs> yeah. But, uh... Yeah. I mean, one, you know, that's about the only detail we have on this whole thing. I'm wondering if it was parked at a gate, how did he think he was going to get the airplane pushed back? Or was it out like on its own on a stand or something and where he could crank yeah, it up? I, and, wish, I wish we knew. But yeah. uh, it's even on a even on a remote stand, you're very lucky if you haven't got something in the way uh, to allow you just taxi forward. Usually there's light stanchions or things in front of you. Uh, there are very few that, in my um, experience, that you can just taxi forward from. But uh, there you go. Just like that 17-year-old girl that tried to steal the King Air, I think we talked about on the uh, last episode, uh, yep, right? Yep. Things got in the well, way. At least she got an engine going. Yeah, she did. Only one, uh, though. Man. Yeah, sadly. Yeah. All right. Um, there's another interesting one from uh, simpleflying.com. Uh, uh, Robert from uh, Mayretta sent this uh, to us. He says, happy holidays, crew. Mom is making me wait to break out the Jack Daniels. <laughs> but in the meantime, oh. I thought this story might prompt some decent conversation. And uh, the, the title of this is um, United Airlines 767 prompts sonic boom over France. Actually, I think he changed the title. Um, it prompts a sonic boom over France after losing contact with ATC. I think he added that. Um, a non-responding United Boeing 767 flight crew. I think they were the ones that weren't responding. Flying over France invoked a sonic boom as fighter jets have raced to intercept the aircraft. The plane was able to establish communications with the ground via the French Air Force aircraft and continued on its journey. By the way, I had to basically write that entire paragraph because it <laughs> just didn't make any sense the way it was written uh, before I touched it. Um, so United Air Fly, uh, Airlines Flight uh, 121 had just left from sunny Barcelona to head back towards New Newark, New Jersey in the U.S. when it lost radio communication over France. So it just transitioned from Spanish airspace to French airspace. They didn't establish communications with French air traffic control. And so finally, uh, I don't know if they, you know, how long they wait, but uh, they finally scrambled uh, a couple fighters and uh, the fighters were able to rendezvous with the flight and, uh, Apparently, they were able to communicate with them, most likely on uh, the guard frequency, 121.5, uh, got them on the correct frequency, uh, reestablished communications with ground control, and uh, then they were off on their merry way to Newark. And uh, I love this paragraph of, the, uh, of this article from Simple Flying. Uh, the jets took off with a roar and kicked in the afterburners blowing out a sonic boom to catch up to the aircraft. Um, let's see. Sonic booms are a rolling sound wave, and I put in, it's really a shock wave, that can be louder than a car door slamming next to your ear, kicking up awake, affecting other aircraft. Now, I put in a, is, is that true? I don't know if a, a, um, a shock wave would affect the, would that affect other aircraft, Nick? Well, no, I've flown right in close formation with another aircraft, and we've both been supersonic, and 
I can promise you there's you don't really feel a thing. Yeah, I didn't think so. But I thought right. having you on the show would be great because you could, you know, say yay or nay on that. I had yeah. a feeling you were going to say nay. I mean, you can you can sometimes hear it, but yeah. the soundproofing has to be, you know, I've heard Concorde go over the top of me while I've been across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And I, I could very faintly hear it. But I asked the rest of the cabin crew if anyone working in the cabin had heard uh, the boom. And uh, they all said, uh, no, we didn't hear a thing. Yeah. So it obviously wasn't very dramatic. I think it's only uh, dramatic to the people that are on the ground that are hearing the boom and had their windows are rattling or sometimes even breaking and that kind of thing. That's yeah. that's the only alarm I think that it would it would cause. Yes, I mean, uh, exactly right. Uh, I do remember a Mirage, an Australian Mirage jet uh, overflew one of their frigates uh, very fast. And uh, he dropped a boom on them, and uh, the pressure difference was so great because they had um, closed up the aircraft for action, the ship for action stations, uh, that it buckled bulkheads and things. But that's really because, um, you know, there was nowhere for the air inside Mm. the ship to escape when the pressure suddenly changed as the uh, sonic boom went over, uh, shockwave went over. So, you know, it it just bent metal because it tried to, the air tried to get out. Wow. yeah, the uh, range safety officer's hut uh, near Williamtown. Someone dropped a boom over there doing a sneaky fly past. It's only five miles from the airbase, so <laughs> what he thought he was doing, I don't know. But he managed to uh, blow the window out and crack the uh, concrete um, range safety officer's hut. Uh, wow. So, so you can do damage with a sonic boom, but, uh, you know, uh, not usually between aircraft. I know this is off track here, um, kind of um, going down a rat hole or whatever, rabbit hole. Rabbit hole, yeah. Um, yeah, it depends on what part of the country or whether Watch you're in the city. Or right the- down the rabbit holes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, have you been able to see the or catch the um, latest uh, trailer teaser for um, Top Gun 2? Oh, yes. Yeah, and I, I watched a couple of... Uh, uh, ex-Navy fighter pilots on a podcast um, talking through uh, some of the maneuvers that were being performed. Yeah. Uh, and it was very impressive. I, th- I thought it's going to be a great movie if if only for the um, the flying sequences. So I, the, one of the, the scene that in that little short trailer that really impressed me the most, and I don't know, if, I don't think it's CGI. I think it's actual footage of like the camera, the airplane that has the camera mounted in it behind whatever it is, an F-18 or whatever. And he, he puts it in a burner apparently and just really quickly accelerates straight ahead right in front of this. Uh, I've never seen acceleration like that before in my life. And I'm, I'm hoping that's the real thing and not CGI, but it was well, very impressive. So am I, uh, uh, but uh, I, I suspect with a wide angle lens, things turn into a dot fairly quickly. Yeah. But uh, I have been told that all the, all the uh, flying sequences are like in the original movie. There, there's no CGI there. It's oh, all good. flying with actual aircraft and using conventional photography. So, uh, yeah, and I've seen some very close aboard passes and some pretty uh, impressive uh, close maneuvering, hard maneuvering. And I'm thinking, well, wow, that's good flying. Some of that stuff looks really good. Yeah, but the flying, you know, I just hope that they have a scene with topless uh, volleyball. And when I say topless, I mean oh, they do. the men, you know. Yeah, they do. And and there are some ladies there. <laughs> are they topless as well? No. Ah, oh well. All right. Uh, I guess it's time for this. Uh, Life's full family of show, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, it family is. Family show. And, and the girls say, That's not 
funny. <laughs> exactly right. By the way, going back to this uh, United Airlines, um, I know of a few aircraft that have had this problem coming towards America, and they haven't been allowed to continue. They've been immediately intercepted and forced to land straight away. So I think uh, the French were being uh, very relaxed about yeah. this in letting uh, United carry on regardless. Very hospitable. Yes, I thought so. Yeah. Good point. Good point. All right, moving on. Um, final report. Uh, now, I don't remember even hearing about this at all. Maybe it's just because my brain is old and I'm just not remembering things. But apparently back in 2019, yeah, May okay, 3rd. May. Okay, was this, this this year? Oh, we're still in yeah. 2019, right? Okay. Well, um, for a couple of days. Yeah, pretty soon it will be 2020. Yeah. Hindsight. Um <laughs> So a, a Buffalo Airlines DC-3 near Hay River on May 3rd uh, performed a forced landing after engine failure. Uh, it was a uh, Douglas C-47A Skytrain registration Charlie Golf Juliet Kilo Mike performing flight 169 from Hay River uh, NT. What is NT? Northern Territories, I think. Um, our, our intrepid um, producer will let us know. NT is... Uh, most likely Northern Territories, to Yellowknife uh, with two crew was en route about 20 minutes into the 55-minute flight when the right-hand engine failed. The crew attempted to return to Hay River, however, had to perform a forced landing in open terrain around about 8 o'clock in the morning, local. The crew remained uninjured. The status of the aircraft uh, at that point was currently unknown. On May 7th, the Canadian TSB reported they opened a Class 4 investigation which is limited scope, medium level of efforts and investment, <laughs> medium level of efforts, not a high level of effort. Yeah. You don't have to try too hard guys. Yeah. It's like, it was just a DC through a C47A. So like, don't worry yeah. about it. Um, a maximum uh, 2000 word uh, short report without findings or recommendations. And I went out on my desk first thing in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, they said during the climb out, the number one engine at Pratt Whitney R 1830, on the left side, lost power completely. Uh, the crew elected to return. Uh, we already talked about that. Um, they initially declared a pan-pan, but they upgraded to Mayday and performed a forced landing about three and a half nautical miles southeast of the Hay River Airport. None of the two crew were injured. The aircraft sustained substantial damage. No fire broke out. Um, so trying to kind of just get, give you a synopsis of what happened here, um, the... Um, uh, the aircraft, they, they pulled the power back on the uh, number one, uh, advanced power on the right side. Apparently, um, it didn't really have much effect on the uh, the thrust really didn't increase at all. The weather at the time was not good at all. They When they left, it was four statute miles and light snow. A few minutes later, the visibility to decrease, decreased to one and a half statute miles and light snow. Uh, ceiling 3,500 feet. So, I mean, it wasn't great. I mean, it, it, it was not super bad, but it wasn't the best weather in the world. Um, so the, um, the thing that I think was most interesting to me on this was that at a certain point, um, the uh, captain said something about prepping the landing gear. And I think the first officer, I guess that was non-standard communication. Um, the FO extended the landing gear which the captain did not expect because the aircraft had not started its final approach and the air, airport had not been visually 
acquired. So I, I think one of the problems in uh, this situation was that they were using non-standard terminology and uh, weren't following the checklists exactly. And uh, the first officer, you know, mistook the captain's, um, you know, sentence uh, or command prepping the, the gear as to lower it. And, and in other words, a lot of landing gear, a lot of drag uh, coming out. One engine um, shut down completely, the other uh, operating not at its best. And at some point, the captain realizes that their uh, their performance is really diminished. I think they got down to like 80 knots. Uh, yeah. And yeah. they weren't very high above the ground, 1,100 feet above the uh, above sea level. I'm not sure what the... Uh, what the elevation there isn't asl above sea level anyway uh, they were it is okay um anyway so when he realized that they were getting really low really slow and they still had a ways to get to the airport he directed the landing gear to be raised Uh, after the landing gear was raised the flight crew heard abnormal sounds and felt vibrations from the right engine and okay this is the point i guess where they had the issue with the right engine and then basically they couldn't make it to the airport they had to put it down on flat land um as mentioned there were no injuries um and a picture of the uh c-47 looked like the thing was pretty well intact i would imagine um it they could probably continue flying that airplane again after they do some repairs i don't know well they're they're pretty tough airframes yeah Uh, so yeah it depends how much money they want to invest in it i expect yeah what do you think, Nick? The only general comment I'm going to make is we seem to cover this problem of uh, crew communication and standard operating procedures uh, more and more often. Uh, mm-hmm. And for me, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, up there in Canada flying a, a lovely old uh, C-47 or in the latest uh, and greatest uh, modern airliners. Uh, we're still two people doing a job and we need to communicate efficient, efficiently and correctly, uh, particularly in an emergency situation. And when that breaks down, uh, problems are going to occur. And we've seen two incidents already in, just in this show yep. uh, that seem to typify that. So that is a concern for me. Yes, me too. And I think most of us have a um, big concern about that. And uh, I don't know what to do. I mean, airline training programs, you know this, Nick, um, and I and Dana know it as well, that our airlines, you know, really, really promote strongly uh, cockpit or crew resource management and uh, threat error management and everything else. And it continues to be uh, a weak point, it appears. Yeah, I don't know what the cure is because the airlines are uh, trying hard to minimize the expense of training, but it's obvious that perhaps we need to devote more time, not less, into making sure everyone knows which uh, page we're reading from at which point in the flight. Uh, and and it, for me, I don't know, I shake my head and go, it's all right for me, I'm a retired bloke. Uh, it's a matter of discipline on the flight deck, and I, I do worry when people aren't disciplined enough to do their job properly. Yeah. And no, Carlos, it's it's okay. It's not too hot, the uh, fire behind me. It, it is warming my buns, but I like warm buns. <laughs> All right. Uh, How about your eggnog? Uh, I do like my, I do enjoy my nog. Oh, good. Excellent. Um, I just wish somebody else would. No, All right. Uh, bam. Rip, rip, where is it? Uh, there we go. Okay. Uh, G. A Beck Air, B-E-K Air 
Fokker 100. Registration, Uniform Papa, Foxtrot 1007, performing flight 2100 from Al- Almaty, or Almaty? I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Almaty, we used Almaty. to say. But, yeah. Okay, to Astana in Kazakhstan, with yeah. 93 passengers and five crew, departed uh, Almaty's uh, runway 5 right uh, in the morning at 721 local. Lost height shortly after departure, impacted ground, broke through a concrete wall fence, impacted a building. No fire broke out. The aircraft broke into several sections. Um, There are some conflicting numbers of dead and injured and that kind of thing, but it looks like uh, 12 people uh, died and several are in severely critical um, uh, condition, condition, I guess the word I'm looking for. And uh, 74 people survived with no or minor injuries. Um, Let's see. Let's move on to the applicable stuff of the actual incident. Um, Oh, by the way, they did mention that the captain did die as a result of the accident. Well, having seen what happened to the cockpit, it's right on his side. Yeah, uh, he made a a connection to a brick building on that side of the uh, cockpit, unfortunately. Uh, Kazakhstan's deputy prime minister reported preliminary results by the investigation investigation commission suggests the aircraft struck its tail under the runway surface twice with a distance of 300 to 400 meters in between. At the end of the runway, the aircraft turned sharply to the right. The landing gear was retracted at this point already. The runway conditions were perfect, however. The commission is looking into human error or technical reasons. The flight data and cockpit voice recorders have been recovered. Um, and they mention again, the captain died. The first officer is in hospital care with serious injuries. A survivor reported the aircraft climbed a little bit before it began shaking. Then a collision occurred. Someone opened the emergency exit and the passenger got out. There were a lot of injuries and a number of fatalities. Another passenger reported the aircraft had just rotated and was beginning to gain altitude when the aircraft rolled left, then right, then an impact occurred. The overwing exit was opened. They crawled out uh, of the aircraft uh, via an icy wing. Everyone on the wing slipped on the wing. The passengers helped each other to get off the wing. The uh, pilot of an aircraft departing Almaty about three hours before Uh, The accident reported that during about two hours, minimal white frost had developed on the wings and tanks of his aircraft. Uh, The rest of the wing uh, wings were clean. However, other aircraft having parked overnight had accumulated significant ice Uh, during departure. I don't know what that is uh, in there. Uh, ADSB data transmitted by the aircraft's transponder suggests the aircraft became airborne, climbed only to between 50 and 100 feet above ground. Veered to the right, impacted buildings, a beam the runway about 3,000 meters, 10,000 feet down the runway, five right. Um, conditions at the time, METAR, um, let's see, P2000N, five right. I think that must be, is that the is that the RVR? I'm not sure what that uh, number is. I'm not u- used to seeing P2000N and P2000D, but they did mention uh, MIST. And um, FU, <laughs> I think that's yeah, FU too. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, didn't mean to be so abrupt there. Um, that's fog. What's the FU stand for? Like un undetermined. I'm not sure. Maybe somebody can help us in our 
our uh, brain it's, trust. Disability, Mr. Fogg, uh, if you, I'll take a look. Yeah, I, I don't recall right offhand what that U stands for. Minus 12, minus 13, the temperature, so very close temperature dew point spread. Hardly any spread at all. is smoke. Smoke? Okay. Yeah. Oh, how about that? Nothing to do with fog. Mist and smoke. Anyway, um, low visibility, very cold. Um, and, um, well, I, I don't know if this is low visibility or not. What did I say here for that? Again, not reading this very well. Sorry. Anyway, so... Looks like the runway conditions were fine. Um, they are going to be focusing upon the uh, condition of the aircraft uh, before it uh, started its takeoff roll. Were there, was there ice on the uh, critical surfaces of the aircraft? A lot of people are suspecting there was. Um, interestingly, when I was doing a little bit of research on this, um, the uh, there were a couple of... Um, uh, big crashes of Fokker 100s and other Fokker models uh, previously, and uh, where where undetected wing icing was implicated. The installation of the leading edge ground heating device was a recommendation of the report by France's BEA investigation agency. From what I can tell, the ground heating system fitted to the final few aircraft off the production line and also installed on others out there operating basically allowed for the same kind of heating leading edge heating system uh, to to occur or to to take place on the ground whereas a lot of these kind of systems aren't allowed to be used until the airport uh, the airplanes in the air where there's better cooling and that kind of thing and apparently they made some modifications to the system i don't know if they lowered the temperature of the air or what but uh, they did uh, uh, call for a mandatory um, system to uh, help with these undetermined or undetected wing icing situations. And in another report that I was reading or another article, they said among the aircraft delivered with the system installed, Yasa's directive noted was this airplane, the airframe involved in the Beck air accident at Almaty. The status of the system of the aircraft has not been clarified. So I don't know if it was working or not, but it was installed. Um, so uh, I don't know, Nick, it sure looks like another situation where, uh, the aircraft attempted to take off with, um, with, uh, cluttered, um, you know, uh, contaminated, contaminated wings. Yeah, wings. Yeah, certainly. I mean, this would be my first guess, uh, just looking at the indications. So, uh, a vibration, a wing drop would indicate to me that there's a possibility the wing stalled. And uh, the fact that they hadn't got airborne uh, correctly and the fact that they also hit tail down onto the runway, um, maybe it was a, a nose-high stall situation. Um, yeah, it would it would indicate that that and the fact that people were sliding off the wing as they tried to get off means that it probably uh, hadn't been cleaned uh, properly. Um, so not good. No. Not good at all. There, there, there's no other... Weather condition, I could see the temperature was certainly good enough for ice, minus 12 and minus 13. So, yeah, it was the conditions were there. If they'd been sat overnight, there's a good chance it would have had some contaminant on the wing. And, uh, I, you know, it takes one of these accidents before people uh, start taking uh, de-icing seriously uh, again, only if it gets out, of course, because, uh, you know, they're 
it's just not worth taking the risk. It really no. isn't. Yeah, at the time, the the delay uh, induced by de-icing is one of those things where you're thinking, oh, this is horrible, but this is much more horrible when you don't take the time and you don't delay the flight and you don't do the required de-icing. And I guess this wing, from what I can tell, is a very, very um, super critical type of design, uh, did not have leading edge devices at all, um, and uh, a very slick wing, I guess we'd say. And uh, apparently yeah. there have been other instances of uh, ice on the wing and, and the crew's not detecting uh, the presence of. And I think that they have to, their procedures require that uh, you do a tactical wing inspection. In other words, actually putting either some type of a device designed to detect ice or you know, actually putting your hands on the wing to see whether or not, uh, because it can be tricky if it's clear ice. Sometimes it looks, the, the wing just looks like it has nothing on it. Just shiny. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But so. you, people who operate regularly in these type of areas, they ought to know they because it, it's part and parcel of their, their operational routine. If they were coming from somewhere near the equator and they were operating up there for the first time, you might go, well, they perhaps they didn't realize. But people who spend their, their lives flying around these areas, they really ought to understand the risks. Yes, absolutely. Uh, quickly, there was a helicopter tour operator on the island of Kauai um, that crashed, and there were uh, six passengers and the pilot uh, all died uh, in this area of uh, which I, I hear is very beautiful. Um, let's see, what's the name of the uh, canyon? Waimea Canyon or something like that? They they said it, they used it uh, as the background for the Jurassic Park movies and oh, wow. um, yeah. you know beautiful waterfalls and and uh, really steep uh, cliffs and that kind of thing and uh, apparently um, it took them some time took them some time but they did find the uh, bodies of the uh, occupants of the helicopter that uh, crashed which is sad uh, it doesn't really say exactly what happened. Uh, they do mention that the weather in that area of the island um, can one moment be beautifully clear and another moment uh, low ceilings, fog, cloud banks, that kind of thing. Heavy rain, strong winds. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's sad. That uh, I was I was quite amazed to read that uh, there were nine crashes of Hawaii helicopter sightseeing flights in the last ten years. Um, that's, that's nearly one a year. Yeah. So, you know, okay. well, you, this is something that you would take for granted as being a fun holiday thing to do, uh, safest houses and absolutely stunning, but you wouldn't expect to lose a helicopter every year. No, you wouldn't kind of gives pause to, you know, when you think about going over there and doing this kind of excursion, Hmm, maybe not, maybe I'll just, uh, stay on the ground and try to see everything from that perspective. Yeah. Save my money. I'll rent a DVD and I'll have a few more pina coladas, please. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then finally, uh, a lot of items in our news folder, but I was uh, determined to crack through all of them. And this last one just occurred a few days ago. Um, it was a private aircraft, a uh, Piper PA-31T Cheyenne 2, November 42 Charlie Victor. Um, the airplane was taking off from Lafayette, Louisiana, en route to Atlanta. Um, the uh, Peach Bowl was on Saturday, 
this past weekend, and the uh, they were all heading up to Atlanta to land at the uh, DeKalb Peachtree Airport, where we've had some some meetups. Nick, you'll remember that uh, really nice meetup that we had there at the uh, oh, for sure. PDK uh, airport. Yeah, that, that was brilliant. That's where they were headed. Um, but oh, yeah. shortly after takeoff, the airplane crashed and it was destroyed by impact with a road and a post-crash fire. Um, and uh, we have some pretty good photos here and a video uh, taken by a, uh, a bystander uh, shortly after this incident occurred, and it was really powerful to me, this video, because it's clear that even the emergency responders are not yet on scene, and you can hear, uh, like, the trees uh, crackling um, from the intense fire in, the, in the, the main section of this wreck. You can see the post office that the, uh, the aircraft crashed in the uh, parking lot of this post office and then just kept on going into an open field. Apparently, some injuries on the ground as well. There was a... Um, uh, Chevy Suburban, and also what they say is a Jeep, although it doesn't, it's hard for me to tell exactly what kind of vehicle it was. It doesn't look like a Jeep to me, but who knows, um, was uh, completely engulfed in flame. And apparently there was, there's a, a serious um, injury uh, that has occurred on, in one of the vehicles that uh, the airplane hit, apparently, uh, during this crash. There were some witness reports here. Now we always, you know, take those with a grain of salt um, because you know humans are sometimes not very accurate when it comes to what oh, they think they saw notoriously bad yeah um, but where are the witness reports I put them somewhere in here um, hmm. oh here we go eyewitnesses tell the local news affiliate uh, KLFY uh, they heard sounds from above like a semi truck as the lights went out in businesses and residences near the crash scene. Several residents tell KLFY they are without power at this hour. Um, a local resident saw the crash. I was right outside before the crash. I noticed the plane was low and smoking like hell. It shook my trailer. I knew something was bad. I went into my house and all you heard was this massive explosion. Um, other eyewitnesses say that someone was scre screaming from a car. There were little explosions for five minutes or so after that. There was a big old ball of flame. So sadly, uh, everyone on board this uh, twin, light twin uh, Cheyenne, uh, perished in, in the accident. So um, we're hoping that we'll be able to find out exactly what happened here. If uh, it was an engine failure situation where they lost control of the airplane or what. But uh, anyway... Um, it just goes to show you that uh, life is precious and for some of us short. And uh, this is uh, another, you know, we, we keep seeing a lot of these um, GA accidents occurring and it's just, uh, it's not a good thing. It gives kind of a black eye to uh, general aviation in general. And uh, I, I wish that we'd start seeing fewer and fewer of these and not more and more. But Hey, I see somebody has joined us here. From his hotel room in El Paso, Texas, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, and apparently now a kidnapper, Captain Dana. <laughs> hey, guys. It's great to be back on the show for another, uh, well, I guess you've already said it, so I'll just join in progress. How's that sound? But I would like to have somebody introduced. Oh wait, wait! Let's we got some introduction. We have some music for our for our special guest. Okay, go ahead. 
well, joining me, my first officer, who's uh, been uh, tortured by me for the last uh, two and a half days, poor guy. Uh, he is uh, he is very intrigued by our show and has a lot of uh, experience in the airline business. Used to be a uh, a regional guy that was a, a line, a, not a line check, but a sim instructor, check pilot. So he's got a lot of uh, experience, and he wanted to come join us today. So here he is, Josh. Say hello. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Josh. <laughs> if you don't mind, when you uh, speak, try to get a little bit closer to the mic. Okay. You'll sound so much better. Is that better? The girls, the chicks will dig it. All right. Yeah, much better. Hey, um, Josh, do you have any experience flying uh, Piper 31T Cheyenne 2? No, I do not. Ah, darn it. Dana, can you find somebody that does? Hey, Josh, why don't you go and leave the room? I'm fired. <laughs> I got to find a replacement. We were just talking about the last item in the news folder, Dana, regarding the uh, Lafayette, Louisiana crash of a Cheyenne 2 um, killing all aboard. Um, they were heading from Lafayette up to Atlanta for the Peach Bowl on, uh, I believe, Saturday morning. I think one survived. No, one did survive. That's right. He's yeah, in critical condition. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Uh, any experience at all with the Cheyenne, uh, Dana? Uh, very, very limited. Um, so, no. I uh, obviously have to read and see what this says, but... Uh, oh, there's no there's no, there's no... It just crashed. Just That's crashed. That's shortly after takeoff. It was sounding <clears throat> like a semi-truck. Now, I, I don't know what that means. It's a lorry. A large lorry. Yeah, I, I got that. <laughs> okay. I got that one out. Yeah. But well, I mean, uh, what an airplane has to do to sound like a semi truck, I'm not sure. Don't know. Well, you know, six occupants is probably very close to max takeoff. I think it was um, like a, yeah, it was, I think it's supposed to be able to hold like nine or 10, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Uh, There's some data here that. You said uh, you got three windows, Jeff. <laughs> okay. Uh, let me go yeah, back I to think, this. I think it's, I think six is probably its max. Mm. I'd say two, two pilots and then four, four in the back. Okay. Maybe I'm thinking maybe it holds seven. more. Yeah, but actually. Maybe, well, we you know we can debate this all night long, but we could, and it's not I even night. Click on, I can just click on the PA thirty one Cheyenne two. Why don't you do that? My guess is eight. I'm going to go. Did you cheat? Six in the back, two at the front. Um. No, I'm going to go by the number of windows. Yeah. You wouldn't put extra windows in if you only had four seats in the back. Well, that's true. That's true. Well. I guess it doesn't really matter, does it? It no. doesn't. But anyway, so, Max you know. Six. What? Max of six. Ma see? All right, Josh. Uh, Sorry, contributing. Uh, and see? Well, I'm Josh. Hey, you just raised our uh, accuracy level. Well done, mate. Yes. About 50% now, Josh, because of you. Thank okay. you. Anyways, uh, I, I would say it's pretty close to, you know, its maximum. Probably had quite a bit of fuel coming out of Lafayette, uh, coming to the Atlanta area. Um, and my guess is either... Uh, Stalled the aircraft or had a critical engine failure and, and didn't control the aircraft properly. That, yep. Just being in the general aviation world and just have to take off, uh, uh, more than likely, that would be my educated guess. Of course, that's all it is, is a guess. So we'll have to wait and see if I'm, if we're above or below 50 percentile. Yeah. Yep. We'll let the investigators do their thing, and uh, hopefully we'll find out uh, more information about this at a later time. But... What we can do now, that now that we're finished with the new segment, getting to know you time. Yes, it's that time where you learn more about what the hosts have been up to since the last episode, and 
any meetups or future meetups scheduled, that sort of thing. And uh, we just celebrated, or many of us have, uh, Christmas time, the holidays. And uh, let's see, let's start with Captain Nick. Um, How was your your holidays, sir? Well, I guess they're still going, aren't they? Well, they are, yeah. And uh, but we don't do much over New Year, so Christmas is our thing, really. Uh, quiet family do for us, uh, so very pleasant. Had the uh, the kids round. Uh, they had lots of presents. I had none at all because you know they, no one ever buys me presents. It's not fair. Uh, Jilly claims that new car out the front was my Christmas present, but oh. uh, it seems to have been a birthday present and a Christmas present, and 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 for the next several years too. Yeah, exactly right. So uh, anyway, um, no, uh, not a lot. I had some interesting little toys to play with, uh, some photographic gear. That'll that'll be uh, nice. Um, the only sad thing was we went uh, to uh, visit Jilly's side of the family. She's got a lot of cousins and chatting to a lovely bloke who um, he, he's just a little older than us. Uh, his daughter uh, is going to get married shortly. Uh, um, a very nice bloke. And uh, we got home and heard the next morning that he passed away during the night, which mm. kind of put the markers on Christmas to a certain extent because uh, he was a favorite cousin of uh, Jilly's, and uh, that was all very sad. But, sad. you know, people die. It happens, I'm afraid. It mm. was, it's, and it's never a good time. But just before your only daughter's married and uh, right at Christmas time, it's not perfect, really. No. So that was a bit of a shame. But uh, other than that, uh, we've had a good time. Thank you very much. I went to the whole family out to see Star Wars. Uh, despite what the critics said, I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, I just, Me too, Captain Nick. I got to see it on Christmas, and I loved it as well. Oh, good for you. Yeah, I'm just hoping they can find some way to find another aspect of the story to uh, have because I don't think I'll be able to have a Christmas without a Star Wars movie. You realize it was 42 years ago uh, around Christmas that I went down uh, in Lincolnshire. Uh, I was doing my Phantom OCU to see the very first one. I'd taken my lovely new wife, Jilly, uh, in my beautiful uh, little uh, Triumph Vitesse sports car and um, uh, we were on our way to watch the movie uh, for the her first time, my second time, and uh, we crashed the car and rode it off. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, that was 42 years ago, but that's been an amazing uh, saga, the old uh, Star, uh, Star Wars saga to have gone on that long. So, uh, yeah, that we were kind of talking about that when we were um, uh, on our way to uh, see the new one. Uh, it had been snowing heavily. That's my excuse. Ah, that's a good excuse. Yeah. And driving too fast, right? Uh, well, I wasn't actually driving very fast, but uh, no, I just uh, lost He's a fighter pilot. Of course you're driving fast. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try to lie, Nick. I uh, I quietly uh, needed to use a telegraph pole to help me stop at a corner, uh, which uh, wrecked the car and didn't do a lot of good to the telegraph pole, come to that. But mm. there you go. Life's like that. Yeah. So you're trying to tell me you ruined somebody's Christmas message. Uh, actually, the telegraph pole was still standing, but it cost a lot of money for me to have it replaced. Uh, the car was too expensive for a, uh, a poorly paid uh, pilot officer to uh, to have repaired. Uh, so I sold it to a local garage. And uh, when I went back to that very same airbase, uh, quite a few years later, uh, I 
went past the garage and there it was not for sale uh, beautifully restored uh, in his uh, front window uh, prior to place and i hmm. shed a quiet tear when wow. i looked at it because it was a lovely car oh well so but anyway that's my christmas okay um you asked me uh if i uh during one of our tech breaks um if i got any um toys for yes. Christmas or birthday and not really, but I did buy one for myself. Um, oh, this, uh, this microphone here is a, a new microphone that I, I bought for myself. Um, and, uh, it is a, um, a lot of you out there who are into, uh, professional audio have recognized the name Neumann. Uh, this is not a Neumann, uh, but this, um, new startup in Southern California, uh, called audio zone, or Tech Zone Audio Products, not a very good name actually, uh, has come up with this new microphone. Where a lot of people out there are comparing it to the uh, Neumann UA87, which is a $1,300 mic, and this one was under 200. So uh, I thought I'd there are a lot of raves about this thing. So I thought I'd go ahead and try it. Now this is unusual because I'm always preaching the benefits and uh, such of um, of dynamic microphones. Uh, so I'm um, going to probably just keep it in the, the home studio um, and see how so it works out. are you out. eating your words as well as your microphone? I'm, am I what? Eating your words. I'm is trying it a condenser? to. <laughs> it is. Well, yeah, sort of, I guess. Um, what, what, what's its, uh, descript- what is it technically known as? It's a large diaphragm um, compressor. You mean like the actual name of it? It's called yeah. the Stellar X2. S-T-E-L-L-A-R-X-2. If you just do a search on YouTube, you'll see a whole bunch of people just uh, you know going nuts about it and how great it sounds, especially for the price. So um, anyway, so that's uh, I, I couldn't stand it. I had to try it. Um, my my toys these days are audio products. So oh, it's nice. It's got a little heart on the front. Well, actually, that's the I think that's the, um, the cartoid card, yeah, uh, pattern shape. Yeah. Button, yes. Anyway, so I uh, had a nice um, Christmas time. Uh, as many of you know who have listened to the show for some time know that I like singing. And I'm involved in several different choirs at my, uh, my parish church. And uh, on New Year's, no, not New Year's, uh, Christmas Eve. New Year's Eve is tomorrow. Christmas Eve, I ended up, because of the fact that I'm singing with all these different groups, it was a marathon for me. I, I ended up leaving the house at about 1 o'clock. In the afternoon, and I sang at the 2 o'clock. No. Let me take that back. I left the house at 3, and I sang at the 4 o'clock, the 6 o'clock, the 8 o'clock, and midnight masses. So uh, four masses uh, over a period of about nine hours. That's masses of masses. It was massive. Um, <laughs> that was um, a massive mass. Um, That's what she said. So, um, yeah. Uh, but my voice was still there, actually, after all of that. And it wasn't until the other day, uh, Chris, my son, and I went to um, that steakhouse, uh, Dana, um, Iron Age. Delicious. It was awesome. And uh, I, I guess I got a little particle or something in the back of my throat when, when I got home. I was trying to, you know, I kept coughing, trying to get rid of it. And I ended up getting rid of about half of my, my stomach full of wonderful Korean barbecue. 
but something either that or the actual coughing or whatever uh, messed up my vocal cords. So the next morning, I mean, I couldn't I couldn't utter a sound. Definitely couldn't sing, and I could hardly talk. So. Uh, it's gotten much better now after a, a day of um, pampering and drinking lots of hot liquids and such. So um, what else has happened here? Had all the kids at home for the holidays. And um, let's see. That's about really all that I have to. Oh, I, I, I was a shade tree mechanic uh, today. Uh, my uh, son's Jeep did not pass emissions and uh, so it got one of these code reader things and found out it was a one of those computers that uh, modern cars now are full of. And this one's called the powertrain control module. And uh, I just had that replaced just under two years ago uh, in order to get it to pass emissions. And that was like $1,800 with the part and labor and everything else. And I, was, I did a little bit more research this time around, found a place in South Florida that manufactures these uh, PCM, TCM computers and uh, for about a third of the price already pre-programmed. And it was so easy. I can't tell you how easy it was to take the old one out, put the new one on, make, you know, do the connectors and, uh, and the engine service light is out and he hasn't gone back to the uh, emissions testing station yet, but we're fingers crossed, hoping that it's going to pass emissions. So before he heads back down to Orlando. So, um, yeah, that's about it. Um, let's see, let me look at my notes here just to make sure I'm not, um, missing anything. No, I'm not. So Dana, uh, you've been a busy man while everybody else has been enjoying our time off. Yeah. Everybody's been enjoying their time off and I actually, uh, have been out working the friendly skies uh, 10 of 11 days in a row. I do have to say it's been pretty mundane. It's been pretty good. Um, I sent in some uh, audio uh, recordings. I've had a couple of meetups, uh, one of which was by complete accident in Milwaukee. My buddy uh, Adam had to come in on a deadhead into Milwaukee <clears throat> on a, another buddy's flight that I knew, and Adam was signing in to the hotel and saw that my name was there. And next thing I know, I, I got a text, hey, Dana, I'm here. I said, you're here where? Milwaukee. Oh, really? So this is Christmas Eve. So I took my first officer. Well, at that point, when I got text, we were having um, dinner at the steakhouse in the hotel, which is actually a delicious steakhouse, by the way. And I, I almost never eat in hotels, but this uh, was a rare occasion because it was Christmas Eve and it was kind of chilly outside. So I uh, had a very, very nice uh, dinner there. And I got the text by that time uh, as we were finishing up dinner that they were signing in and uh, would be down to the sports bar in the hotel. <clears throat> and as it turns out, there was uh, six of us all getting together, six pilots, and hung out and and we were jolly, merry, and having a good time. And one of the foes just flown with you, Jeff. So excited. Oh, yeah, so Sean. Play that audio. Okay. Play the audio. There will be an intro into that uh, little piece. Hello, APG community. This is Captain Dana, and I happen to be on a fantastic overnight up here in Milwaukee on Christmas Eve. And a buddy of mine that was uh, on the overnight, my buddy Adam, reached out to me and said, hey, we're going to be here on the overnight as well. And by the way, my buddy Adam 
told me that another friend, Alan, was here on the overnight. So we all hung out a little bit and had a good time and having a little bit of a conversation with one of the, uh, one of the other Acme pilots. And he said, well, I just flew that guy, Jeff. Jeff? Jeff who? Jeff from APG, airline pilot guy. No way. Really? So they found that very interesting. And so I said, well, Sean, would you like to do a little recording? He said, sure. So here I'm going to hand the, the, uh, the microphone over to Sean, and he can say hello on this wonderful Christmas Eve. Hey, folks. My name is Sean, and I had the wonderful opportunity to fly with uh, Jeff from uh, APG. And uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to fly with him. Uh, and, and I had, uh, hadn't met him prior, but I knew about the uh, APG podcast. And uh, it was wonderful actually to meet one of the people involved with the podcast. And uh, we had a uh, mechanical issue, and uh, it, it was our first leg there. And, and uh, we got there, and uh, it, it was just wonderful to be with a, uh, with a, a, a captain like that. And uh, we had a great trip, uh, you know, a nice, wonderful two-day trip. And, uh, and, and now here I am right now in uh, Milwaukee with uh, another fellow, Dana, that is involved with the APG podcast. And it was, a, it was wonderful to be a part of a small uh, world of pilots that uh, were involved with. So um, it, it, it's just nice to be involved with that. So, hey, thanks, Dana, for, uh, for uh, hanging out with me and that. I appreciate the opportunity to say something. Uh, and, and to Dana and to uh, Jeff and uh, everyone at APG, that, great pilots, great people. And it's, uh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Sean, you hit it right on the head. This is an amazing community, and without all the folks that are involved with it, that listen to it, that participate in it, and that care about what we have involved in, in our community, uh, we wouldn't have that community. So thank you very much. And I know it's, uh, as, as a former first officer that's flown with Jeff um, and a mentor to me, uh, he, he has represented a lot of great things in my life. So uh, I, I get where you're coming from, and it's amazing, uh, amazing experience to, to actually Actually, have had the opportunity to fly with Captain Jeff. Uh, on that note, it, it, Christmas Eve up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we had a fantastic night. It turned out to be uh, a lot more fun than I anticipated because we got to hang out with great people like Sean and, and some other friends that uh, were here on an overnight. So all I have to say is, hey, Jeff, back to you in the studio, and Merry Christmas to everybody. Merry Christmas. Well, thank you. It's so nice to uh, hear from Sean. What a great guy, huh? What a great guy, that guy Jeff. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, see this video here. I know most of us mostly listen to the the radio, but his head is getting really big. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, I uh, I don't deserve any of it. That's for sure. So yeah, well, no, you you. Well, you're if you pay a guy enough it. money, yeah, money talks. Yeah, money well, talks. I, I bought all the drinks, so yeah, he was very happy. Yeah, <clears throat> I find that makes yeah. your first officers very happy when you buy their drinks and their meal. <laughs> yeah right so josh take right a, josh <laughs> yeah jo josh is the beneficiary last night ah there you go okay S speaking of last night yeah did you get the audio i did okay well let me intro it though okay uh so i have a nice 32 hour layover in the city of brotherly love actually originally had a three day trip that i swapped into this four day because of this uh, wonderful layover that was out there i love philadelphia and look, be told the um, the weather actually was very cooperative. It was in the you know mid forties. It was kind of rainy, like raw, but that's okay. Uh, 
but uh, had a surprise guest uh, that had emailed me once they saw it on my schedule that I was going to be in Philadelphia. And then on top of that, I had another guest that wanted to come join me that hasn't come on an overnight with her husband in a long time on as Captain Dana. Um, so my lovely bride came up to Philadelphia, and we all got together and had a, a blast of a time. So instead of me introducing any further, why don't you roll the tape? Okay, rolling tape, rolling tape, rolling tape. Well, hello, APG community. This is Captain Dana, and I'm here on an overnight up here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and uh, came over to this bar called Smith's Restaurant and Lounge uh, to watch the Patriots game that starts here in just a few minutes. They're playing against the Miami Dolphins, so uh, looking forward to another great game and the conclusion of our season. In the meantime, uh, a couple of uh, gentlemen have come out to meet up here in Philadelphia, which is great. Um, so I wanted to go ahead and, and let those guys say something to the entire community today. I also spoke to um, also spoke to Ka uh, Colonel Jeff as well earlier. He's uh, very apologetic he couldn't make it. He had uh, family commitments today. But other than that, we, we do miss you, Colonel Jeff. And uh, without that, and any further ado, I'm going to hand the microphone over. I'm just going to let the guys introduce themselves, tell them a little bit about themselves, and we'll go from there. So here you go. Hi, my name is Sal. I'm a longtime APG listener. Um, I'm here with um, um, some. Uh, I'm here to uh, meet. Uh, here to meet Dana, uh, aka Tony, as I know him from uh, podcast 90. Um, I'm from Philadelphia. Lived here all my life, and when I found out they were in the area, and I happened to see them on Facebook, I said I got to make a point to come down here. Even though I'm leaving tonight for a flight out of the country, I. I, this is an opportunity that I figured I may not have again anytime in the near future. So, um, but uh, I enjoy listening to the podcast, and uh, I'm not having much to drink because I'm going to do most of my drinking on the plane tonight, and uh, that way I can sleep it off the, the uh, nine-hour flight. But uh, it's kind of fun. It's kind of always interesting meeting people that you hear about on the radio, and uh, given the opportunity, it's it's a worthwhile opportunity to meet with these fine people. Uh, I enjoyed listening to Jeff and uh, and the rest of the crew, and uh, so I will now uh, pass the microphone on to a uh, back to Greg. Greg. Uh, g'day, APG community. My name's Greg. I'm from Brisbane, Australia. I've uh, just come over for a couple of weeks uh, holiday here in the US. Uh, flew into New York. Just come down to Philly to uh, meet up with Dana and his lovely wife. And uh, then I'll be uh, shooting down to the uh, Udvahazi Museum in Washington just to have a bit of a look around and uh, back to New York and back home to Brizzy. Um, love the APG uh, podcast, been listening for uh, quite a number of years now and uh, just want to shout out to uh, Captain Nick and Dr. Steph and uh, Captain Jeff. No, I didn't forget. Uh, thank you very much for the podcast. Ciao. Bye. Well, thank you, Sal and Greg. Greg, all the way up here from Brisbane, Australia, and Sal, all the way up from yeah, the wonderful South Philadelphia. Uh, anyways, uh, you mentioned it, Greg, and I do have my lovely bride that joined me uh, up here on this overnight. Uh, of course, what happened? She gets on the airplane. Where was she sitting? Where I can never get, seem to get, it's very elusive, first class. She's sitting over here, but she just doesn't want to say anything at this point. She's being a little shy. 
A little bit about Sal. He's flying over to Venice this evening and on the 747. I think he forgot to mention that. And um, all the way last night, arriving last night, uh, was Greg, and he flew over a 777 on Cathay, I believe it was. Was it not correct? So anyways, uh, sitting here having a fantastic meetup, as I always like to say, fantastic is one of my words. Uh, just enjoying some great company and really honored these guys came out to spend some time with me. Of course, Greg, I'm the first uh, cast member of the APG show he's met. So really a pleasure and uh, an honor uh, getting to meet you today. On that note, Jeff, I'm going to send back to you in the studio. Captain Dana's out. Bye-bye. Wow. Yeah. What was wow was, uh, <laughs> was it Greg that couldn't remember my name? Thanks, Greg. <laughs> In his defense, him off the list. He, had, he, he, he had had a few beers now, mind you. And he was also on, I mean, that was, uh, you know, so it's about, uh, you know, he'd been up for I don't know how many hours. Yeah, I know. I'm just, I'm just playing. I, I hardly remember my own name, so I don't, I don't give him That's a bad right. time. Just thought so I do have to correct something so that we're above 50%. Yes. I did say that Greg came over on the 777. That is not correct. He came over on the A350 oh. and absolutely loved it. So he uh, is a private pilot down there in uh, Australia, and he has a 30, a 30-day trip planned to fly. I can't remember. It was, no, 30-hour, 30 30-hour 30 uh, plane trip that he's going to be flying with another Another uh, aircraft all over uh, north, northern, northeastern part of uh, Australia. Um, and he's actually flown the entire continent, and he also likes to ride motorcycles. So we had a lot to talk about, and then Josh came came out, and that was, you know, Josh came after recording. We ended up all spending the night together. No, well, it doesn't sound very wow. good. <laughs> the evening, uh, cutting up, having a good time, um, and uh, went out for dinner. Uh, family show yes all of us spent the night together my poor wife <clears throat> no um so <laughs> anyways uh we had it we had it we had a really good time um and just enjoyed uh cutting up between you know, between all of us and um it was a gentlemanly trip too i mean how often you get in at 11 o'clock at night and don't leave until late 15 in the morning two days later so that was just is rock star so you know really rested and you know other than that the flying part of it everything's been pretty been pretty darn smooth except for the flight here to um el paso uh 40 minute delay for a late inbound aircraft because they swapped it into it and then we got here to el paso it's very interesting I, jeff have you ever landed on runway four in el paso mm, yeah not very often but yes yeah Today, I mean, I've been over here many times too, and I think this is my first time ever landing on runway four. Now, runway four, the basically the final approach fix is right over the Mexican and U.S. border, and it's about four. I think it's four point eight miles, yeah, right at four point eight miles, and they want us to stay within that. And uh, in the ninety, heavily loaded, um, no. There's, there's no way that we're not going to cross over the Mexican border. So they tried to coordinate, uh, you know, that would have been an unstable approach criteria by the time we brought it around. So normally they would be able to get you a, you know, left base to final. And uh, they were trying to coordinate with Mexican authorities, and they said absolutely not. So they climbed us back up 
in back uh, Fuas West and circles, circles around the uh, uh, very high mountains that's under the initial approach fix on uh, the localized runway four and tried to descend us down to the MVA, uh, which was 7,200. And I'm looking at the, the fix that's right over the mountains, and it said to cross that fix at 7,500. Uh, so I told the air traffic control, uh, you know, per the procedure that with the terrain, I would prefer to stay, you know, a little bit higher. They weren't happy about that, but they gave it to us anyways. And then uh, came in on the visual to runway four. Still over Mexican airspace. Apparently, they own the U.S. owns the left downwind and the Mexicans, Mexican authorities own the right downwind. It was very interesting. So it was all kind of elbows and, and, uh, I uh, can't say the other word publicly. Anyways, um, <laughs> yeah, it was very, it was very busy. But uh, Josh was flying it, and uh, he did a great job. Excellent. Well done, Josh. Uh, in answer to your question, Dana, uh, uh, how often do you get forty-eight-hour uh, layovers? Uh, all the time, mate. All the time. <laughs> I, I, I expected that response from Nick. <laughs> the long-haul flying world is—that's normal, actually. Yeah, but Nick, how Not many time us. zones do you have to travel through, and how many? How much of that is red eye flying, and you know, backside of the body clock flying? Uh, it's fine. I, you know, not unless you're a sense of control like yourself. <laughs> All right, um, that's that's getting to know me. There you go. And now we wish we hadn't. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Let's see. Anything else before we move on to Well, we were, I was hoping by now um, Steph would have uh, joined us, but we're just going to have to get we, caught up with hear from Josh. Pardon me. Oh, well, we're going to hear yeah. from Josh. Well, it, we, we, is, we don't have like a 10 hour show uh, to hear what he has been up to since the last time he was on the show. <laughs> the editor, I'm sure. yeah. How was, I can talk all day if you need me to. How, uh, so uh, what, what have you been up to, Josh, since the last show? <laughs> well, I can go ahead and start a little dissertation here for you in a second, but I mean, <laughs> now, unfortunately I got stuck on a four day with this guy. It seems oh. pretty, seems to be going pretty well so far. Yeah. Watch out. Had never, a good time in Philly. Never turn your back on him. No. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's, I'm glad that you had a chance to uh, kind of join in with uh, Dana today. It's always nice to see fellow crew members and appreciate it. Yeah, hope you enjoy hanging out with us the next one and a half hours. I think we have about that much left, just under that right now. Anyway, as I said, when we see uh, Steph join the um, uh, the green room and join us here in the video, we'll get all caught up with her because I know she's been busy as well. So without further ado, I think it's now time for us to talk about coffee and the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Yes, the Java Jive. We sing that, or I do, and Jeff Smith does to uh, indicate it's time for us to talk about the coffee fund, which is your way, dear listener, to help us financially via the coffee fund. Become part of the coffee bar club, the coffee fund cadre, whatever you want to call it, just a bunch of great people who send in money to help us offset some of our costs. 
Uh, since the last episode, using the Coffee Fun Classic method, we have Vigner, Jason Kuntz, Randy Ward, John Clem, Alistair Kerr, and Matsus Karim. And by the way, Randy actually sent, he's a recurring contributor, but he sent in a special Merry Christmas, Happy New Year message to us and a, an extra little bit of money. So thank you very much, Randy. I think he's on vacation somewhere in Europe right now. So I hope you're having a great time, and thank you very much. Also, since the last episode, we we do not have any new producers or patrons via Patreon.com, but that's another way to do it. So to learn more about how you can become a patron of the show, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. All right, that means it's time for our feedback. And let's start off with a gentleman from New Zealand. And uh, he sent us some audio feedback. Hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Dana, the retired Captain Nick, and Dr. Steph, and the lovely Liz. It's Glenn here. I'm sure you know my voice by now. Um, Just read a thing on Facebook by a friend of mine called... JP Santago, he's talking about the 737-700 eyebrow windows. And I know you said on the on the Mad Dog this will have eyebrow windows. So apparently they plugged them back in 2005. They come up with a, a retrofit on the aircraft to plug the eyebrow windows. And apparently it saves the airlines some 200 man-hours a year of maintenance. So I'm surprised that um, Acme hasn't done the same thing, plugged the eyebrows. I mean, you know, they are a complete amount of waste of time. I mean, they are the old, they were designed before the days of TCAS. So I just wondered, um, well, I suppose, I know there's only a few years left of the of the, uh, the good old Mad Dog, but I'm surprised they still have eyebrow windows. Anyway, um, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to everyone. And see you all. And... Looking forward to the next podcast, and that's Glenn out. Well, I don't know about you, Glenn, but I do pluck my eyebrows on occasion. When yeah, they get a little all those out of girly Magdog pilots are going to go around plucking their eyebrows, that's for sure. <laughs> I think I a, lot of, a lot of us are on the same freak here, the same page. Um, so we, uh, I, I, I kind of find it hard to believe that uh, you save 200 man hours per eyebrow window. I'm not sure exactly how that is figured. Um, not a lot of things happen to those eyebrow windows um, on on the Mad Dog that I know of. Um, I've never heard of one cracking or having to be replaced. Um, you, Dana, have heard it? Yeah, well, uh, Josh just said. Uh, and they've got like 600 screws on every window in our plane, too. Mm-hmm. It seems I, like for the bounty on it. Yeah, but I mean, so uh, over. what kind of, well, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm old school. I like having those windows and being able to see the airport and flying visual approaches myself. But uh, you, I do you know look, that you look through those windows above your head to see the airport. Yeah. <laughs> Which way up are you? Yeah. No, I use the one that's <laughs> over there over my, my FO's window when I'm turning right. To uh, to uh, oh, okay. never mind. I know you guys never look out windows in those airplanes. No, you of course not. But uh, I um, I'll do what's a window. Yeah, 
I do know that uh, the um, MD-95, otherwise known as the Boeing 717, about the first half of the run uh, actually had the eyebrow windows in them. And then at some point, they they just stopped manufacturing them with the uh, eyebrow windows. I don't, you, you've probably seen that before, right, Dana? For the yeah, Some of them yeah, have them and some have- don't. Yeah, yeah, some do. Sometimes you feel like nuts, sometimes you don't. Yeah. I'm just getting nuts, sometimes don't. Yep. Exactly. Um, but yeah, um, I don't I don't know if it'd be worth the hassle of uh plugging those things up, especially now, as you mentioned, uh, Glenn, the fact that the airplane is scheduled to be retired in the next couple of couple of years, so it's probably not worth the cost. So anyway, I I guess m- maybe I'm one of the only pilots out there that actually uses those things. Yeah. I guess I'll be retired soon yeah. as well. So I, I honestly spend more time plugging that thing up with something to block the sun beating down on my head. Yeah, that's another problem with it is the yeah. fact that uh, it, there's a lot of stuff stuffed in there now that um, renders them useless. So, oh, well, um, I guess soon I'll be out there on my uh, rocking chair out front telling the kids to get off my lawn. All right. Um, <laughs> Probably. Item number two, uh, Chris sent us some feedback, and it has something to do with electric beavers. Woo! Mm. Shockingly good. I don't know if – did I put that in there or did somebody else? I don't know. Uh, here is some info on electric working in planes for you. Still a long way to go. And uh, it says low en- energy-to-weight ratio in terms of net cal- calorif- calorific value. Cal- calorific. Calorific value. Yeah. NCV, I like to call it. Uh, as well as a relatively short lifespan, makes batteries unsuitable beyond a given application, while fossil fuel delivers an an NCV of 12,000 watt-hours per kilogram. A manganese-type lithium-ion battery offers 120. So 12,000 versus 120, which is 100 times less per weight even at a low frequency of 25 percent the internal combustion engine outperforms the best battery in terms of energy to weight ratio the capacity of a battery would need to increase 20 fold before it could compete head-to-head with fossil fuel Uh, although they work they're working on it but uh, they aren't quite there yet another limitation of battery propulsion over fossil fuel is the fuel by weight while the weight diminishes as it's being consumed the battery has the same dead weight, whether fully charged or empty. This puts limitations on uh, electric vehicles, driving distances, and would make the electric airplane impractical. Furthermore, the combustion engine delivers full power at freezing temperatures and continues to perform well with advancing age, a trait that is not achievable yet, anyway, with the battery. A battery that is a few years old may deliver only half of the rated capacity. So, but... As we mentioned when we were talking about the um, the outfit Harbor Air up in uh, uh, British Columbia, uh, the type of flying that they do are very short segments. So it seems that it could be well suited for their type of operation. But as far as doing the, the long haul stuff, I think we're a long way away from that. Interesting. I didn't realize that in compared with the fossil fuel, they were quite so inefficient, but that's amazing. Mm-hmm. It we is. Make some good points, particularly about the weight. Yep. That's for sure. Yeah. As, as fuel is consumed, as we all know, um, you know, the, the weight of the aircraft uh, is lessened and uh, performance increases, etc. cetera. Absolutely. Yeah, but, you know, what doesn't make sense to me in this, though, is if you think of uh, like, uh, and not them plug in a particular 
automobile, but the Tesla has one of the best acceleration in the world. So, I mean, how, I don't know. I don't get it because the combustion engine can't keep up and it's far more. I think they're talking about the total amount of energy that can be converted uh, from a fossil fuel compared to delivered by a battery. Uh, and whilst you can uh, make a very efficient electric motor, Dana, and you can suck the power out of the battery and drive the car very fast, it doesn't go very far. Uh, and, you know, that is yeah. a big disadvantage. Yeah, that's true. It's like the the cheetah versus the, what's another animal that goes Tortoise. Much? Tortoise, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Um, actually it's the rabbit and the hare, uh, or the tortoise and the hare, but, uh, what? I was thinking cheetahs are, you know, they, they can sprint really fast, but they, they're not distance runners. They're, they're not marathon big cats. I don't know which one is, but <laughs> kind of blows my hole. That's Whatever. right. I'm, I'm trying to think of an animal, uh, analogy as well. And, uh, yeah, can't think of it. No, uh, I, I'm going to say hummingbird and albatross. There you go. Oh, that's a good one. And you'll have to figure that out yourself exactly how yeah, that. The electric hummingbird and the fuel yeah. fossil fuel albatross. Very good. All right. Well, thank you, Chris, for that uh, little bit of information about uh, the NCV. Is it, did I get that right? NCV or NVC? Uh, NCV. Uh, net oh, calorific that. value. That's yes, it. NCV. Yeah, I use that term every day, actually. Uh, let's see. Somebody named Liz. Uh, the same name as our producer in Toronto sent in this. She said, a lovely story just before Christmas. Aww. Yeah. And it, it's from it's uh, just after Christmas. Uh, well, now it is. But when she sent this in, <laughs> it was before Christmas. And let's start off right away by um, having a a picture of an, of an Emirates. Uh, looks like a triple seven. Uh, can't uh, tell, yeah, or 767, I, so. I don't know, but uh, it's an Emirates aircraft. No, and three three uh, wheels on my bogey, it's a 777. Yeah, and, uh, and and then we see that this story is entirely about a Virgin Atlantic flight attendant. <laughs> yeah, who've never flown the 777. Yeah, so uh, whether you're a frequent flyer or have only flown on a passenger aircraft once in your life, here are five things to know about passenger planes. A Virgin Atlantic flight attendant didn't hesitate to play favorites when sharing the sweet story of her favorite passengers, a kind-hearted man and the elderly woman he selflessly swapped seats with so she could enjoy his first-class digs. Now, I'm thinking that that first paragraph that I read probably had nothing to do with this article, so I do apologize for that. Uh, last week, Virgin Stewardess, Virgin Atlantic Stewardess, I should uh, say, uh, yes, that sounds a little more appropriate. Yes, Leah. Yeah, I would think I would think you would need to adjust that a little bit there, Jeff. Yes, Leah. How would we know? Leah Amy shared the heartwarming tale on Facebook in a post that has since gone viral, with over four thousand one hundred likes and thirteen hundred shares. Leah has already met famous athletes, supermodels, and actors through her work as a flight attendant. But she said these two travelers, whom she identified as Jack and Violet, were her new favorite passengers ever. According to the New Zealand Herald, the two travelers spontaneously struck up an instant friendship at the unnamed airport they were traveling from when Jack decided that the octogenarian would get more out of his prime seat to the Big Apple than he would. It was reported that the 88-year-old's uh, it was reportedly the 88-year-old's dream to sit at the front of the plane, Leah added, and the thoughtful traveler was inspired to make it come true. 
out of the kindness of his own heart. After boarding, Jack traded his upper-class cabin, Virgin's equivalent of the traditional first-class section, for Violet's economy seat, which was situated directly next to the toilets, but Jack reportedly kept the good deed quiet. Jack sat on the front the row of seats directly next to the economy toilets and never made a peep or asked for anything the rest of the flight, Leah detailed. No fuss, no attention. Literally did not uh, did it out of the kindness of his heart. No one asked him to. Uh, the flight attendant detailed the 88-year-old woman uh, often travels to New York to visit her daughter. And the recent trip was uh, in first in a long while due to a knee replacement. When flying across the pond, Violet's dream has always been to sit up at the front of the aircraft, and Jack generously made it come true. You should have seen her face when I tucked her in her bed after supper, Leah remembered. Though the octogenarian didn't provide the stewardess with a phone number or email to share the photos taken, taken of her on the special flight, Leah said she planned to forward the memorable pictures in the mail and shared them on social media in the meantime. Facebook users, meanwhile, were quick to praise Jack as a true gentleman and a wonderful guy. And so there you go. Isn't that nice? A, a nice heartwarming story as opposed yeah, to crashes. And uh, even Richard, uh, who used to own the airline and kind of still does, uh, said uh, that uh, he was so inspired by the story that um, he was going to carry it forward by offering complimentary upgrades to most of their seasoned customers on board all their flights from uh, that day, uh, which was uh, Christmas Eve, until the 1st of January. So, oh, Actually, the most were, seasoned customers. you got to be the oldest. Uh, possibly. Or have a lot of salt in your hair. Yes. Or pepper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Or blue. Yeah. Another way to, uh, to measure seasoning levels. Yeah. Now, I have a question, Liz. You're in the background there. Why would why would this have a picture of Emirates airplane at the beginning of this thing? Well, I don't think Liz can answer that well, question. Well, we and we already <laughs> we kind of just talked about that already at the very beginning that uh, that was a journalist that uh, doesn't really pay attention to uh, those kind of things. I guess I missed that part of the conversation. Where, where were you? <laughs> yeah, I thought you were yeah, sitting he, right there. <laughs> I was on a different planet. Okay. Uh, well, you know, because because my connection, you are Skyping a little bit, so I do have to say, ah, that that's, a, that's a good excuse. Okay. Uh, item four, Tim. Uh, good day, Dr. Steph, Captains Jeff, Dana, and Nick. This is formerly Acme Express crew scheduling supervisor Tim, now regular dispatcher for, um, let's call it Acme Connections. Sadly, I fell a bit behind on the show with my studies for initial. Well, today I passed my comp check and I got signed off, which means I can fall back into the syndrome. And of course, he's talking about the ABG syndrome. All that brings me to the topic I wanted to see how the crew felt about. Recently, a major carrier in the U.S. created a new airplane, the CRJ-550, which is simply a CRJ-700 with fewer seats and recertificated to fit into scope as a lighter aircraft. There have, been, there have now been rumors that more of these types of conversions are being considered by the major U.S. carriers. Um, what I wonder is what the reaction of the mainline crews is to these attempts to, uh, for lack of a better word, jam airplanes into scope. 
Also, I'm curious if any of the crew have ridden as a passenger on one of these new CRJ 550s, as I've heard mixed thoughts on both the service offered and the comfort of the new cabin. And given that I don't that much, uh, that I don't that much of these questions is for Captain. Okay. And given that I don't think that much of these questions are for Captain Nick, I'll just say I love the plain tales and congrats to your countryman, Lewis Hamilton, on his F1 World Drivers Championship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's his sixth. His Good sixth job, Lewis. Yes. Quite a driver. Um, so. I'll tell you one thing that I've always avoided while doing the, well, first the Catholic pilot podcast and now the uh, airline pilot guy show is I don't like to delve into areas of uh, politics and union versus company kind of issues like scope. So I think that we'll just kind of set that aside because this is not the show for that, but we can uh, try to answer the question regarding have we been on this airplane or, you know, do, do we know much about it? And um, I have not. Um, the only one that I think may have in our community is uh, Stephen Ivey. I think I remember him uh, tweeting about that or there was some kind of conversation in the social meds going on, I think, a few days ago regarding it. But I'm not sure if he's actually been on one or not. Uh, but I believe it's United Express uh, is the outfit that's running these things now, right? They're a uh, United Airlines connection carrier. Um, no, I forget. I'm not sure which one, but uh, it's not yeah. Mainline that's operating these things as far as I know. Well, explain to me and those of us who aren't familiar with the American uh, way of doing things, Jeff. But what does it mean when you're recertifying an aircraft to fit into the scope of a lighter aircraft or into scope. Oh, you're going to force aircraft. me to do it, aren't you? Um, well, I don't understand what it means. What it uh, means is in the contract, in union contracts, and most ah. most carriers' pilot union contract or pilot contracts are union negotiated things. And so we have a pilot working agreement, and there are there is a section in everybody's contract called scope, and what that does is it tries to control in a certain way. Um, the amount of flying that is performed by carriers that look and feel and smell just like the main line, but they're not. Uh, the uh, fee-for-departure airlines, the connection carriers, the regional airlines, whatever you want to call them. They go by a bunch okay. of different names. And so one of the things we'll place in a contract is that you can only operate this type of airplane with this many seats and nothing more than that. And that, in a certain way, attempts to force more of the flying for the uh for carrying more passengers uh and different segments to the the mainline carrier because after all the contract for the pilots are for the mainline airline so it's to keep the company from having a huge number of the flying going away to these companies that are not technically the mainline carrier so i don't know that's my best stab at uh uh, an explanation of scope. There's more to scope than, than just that, but in this case, that's what uh, he's okay. referring to. I've got a, I've got an idea now. Thanks. Yeah, and it's really not the first time that has happened either. Um, Northwest Airlink back uh, when they first started flying the CRJ 200, they ran it under a 44 c configuration, and I know they did something similar with the Embraer 175 due to the scope. I think it was United. It was either United or Northwest had with the max landing weight of the aircraft. So they just certified at a lower weight. Right. Even though the yeah. performance of the aircraft could be at a higher max weight, they just recertified it so that this is the max weight. And so it fell within the 
contract uh, pr- provisions. And, and ASA did the same thing that we had 40, uh, 50 seat aircraft that had uh, 44 seats on it. So, you know, it's, 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 it's just a way of, of, uh, um, you know, you said, uh, you want to leave it alone and we'll, we're just going to leave it alone. So yeah, that's good. That's, uh, without getting into all the stickly details and that kind of thing. It's, uh, yes. this is more of the kind of conversation you'd have at the bar, you know, after, you know, having a few beers with friends talking about this kind of thing. I, I believe anyway, work, 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 work. It's true. So I see something in the green room. Wow. Who could it be? Looks like we have from her lakeside home in the Carolinas, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and a celebration ale connoisseur, commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hello. Hey, guys. I made it, finally. Sorry for my uh, tardiness today. Oh, I apologize. We knew that was going to happen anyway, because it's yeah. Monday, and Monday's not a good day for me. Um, but it works for everyone else, so we'll, we'll just make it work. So, glad to see you all. Great glad to, to see you. Glad to be joining the conversation at the bar with a drink and getting into the weeds about... <laughs> About scoping, contracts, scoping contracts and yeah. work, 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 work. Love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Trust me. Good you stuff. don't want that's, to get into the, the weeds of that. That's why everyone's here, though. You said that. And I'm like, no, that's kind of why everyone's listening. They want to know about this minutia and stuff that would be, you think it would just be boring, but yeah. it's not. Maybe it is. Ah, to me, it is. So Yeah, that's because it's your job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Steph, uh, did you have yeah. a nice uh, Christmas holiday? I did. Um, it was very nice weather here in the southeastern United States on Christmas Day. Um, didn't have any really big plans because that was the only day I had off of work. The entire week was just Christmas Day. Work, work, um, work. Work, work, work. Uh, yeah, it's a busy time of year for us. Um, so I took a quick trip up to um, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. A um, couple hours drive away. Took the dogs. Um, did a little bit of walking around on some very easy trails and then kind of just turned around and came back. But it was a nice day for it. So, And then, uh, yeah, this past weekend, um, every year, usually on New Year's Day, um, there's a big extended family get-together in the Chicago area with all my aunts and uncles and cousins and ex- all their extended family now, too. It's it's a ton of people. I almost need name tags anymore because I'm like, I don't know who, who everyone is. <laughs> is that the, the Great Foosball uh, Championship? This is the, the Great Foosball uh, Tournament, yes. Mm-hmm. And oh, who you're not... teamed with this year? Yeah, this year I was teamed with Linda. Um I probably should know who she's actually related to there, but I forget. That's just somebody um, that you're related to. She's an extended, to. extended relative. Yeah. <laughs> and we made it through the first round. Um, we, we took out some, some some favorites in the first round, and then we were decisively defeated in the second round by oh. the a team that went on to the finals. And then they – it was it was a good final match, actually. It was very, very close. It was very exciting. So, Any cheating? Oh, there's always some cheating. There's always someone <laughs> spinning them. I'm like, you can't spin the darn thing. Come on. If you're not, so they usually lose anyway. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. Yeah, but it was it was good. Um, got to see family and uh, easy in and out of O'Hare, so that was that was good. I only really spent a few minutes in the penalty box on the way in for being early, but that was good. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and any uh, Christmas? Yeah. Do you get anything fun for Christmas? Not really. Yeah. Well, I actually, you know what? One of the best is my dad. Uh, this will be a callback to earlier in the year. He got me a 50 states journal. 
so I can go back in and write all my notes about <laughs> all the 50 states. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a bit late. You should have yeah. given it to you. <laughs> in advance, you so I can actually, first... <laughs> that's okay. I can remember most of the, de- actually, the, the states I haven't been to in a long time are the ones that are going to be hard to fill in. Um, and an Atlas Obscura. So all the, oh, weird, all the odd nooks and crannies of the world. So yeah, I love it. good gifts. I liked it. You know, what we didn't talk about is any of our plans for New Year's, um, mm. because that is actually New Year's Eve is tomorrow as we're now recording the show. By the time you're listening to this, however, it'll probably be past New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. But um, So Happy New Year. Woo-hoo. Happy New Year. Yay. Um, Dana, you having a party at your place? Uh, actually, the neighbor because I am working. Uh, one of the neighbors oh. picked up the slack, and we're having a uh, hoedown, lowdown, and drunk down. Okay, <laughs> like sounds like fun. <laughs> it's gonna be, and my uh, my in laws actually should just about be pulling in to the homestead right now, driving in from Boston, and they're uh, back down to uh, Florida for their winter solstice, and uh, <clears throat> they. Uh, they will be joining us as they like to, and and going to have a have a really fun time with them as well. So. Excellent. Uh, I know Nick, you mentioned that you, know, you don't really do much for New Year's, and and at my no, house no, we don't I've really. I've got to deliver either. a bed to my uh, son in <laughs> London uh, on New Year's Day, so uh, I shan't be staying up late. I'll, I'll have a I'll have a beer and open a bottle of champagne or something properly, but that'll be it. Yeah, I'll text you at midnight. Happy New Year. Is that mine midnight or your midnight? Because I'm not staying up until your midnight. Yes. (laughs) Well, by the time ours rolls around, you might just be getting up anyway. So it's okay. Oh, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Steph, any plans? Yeah. Uh, I don't know yet. Yeah. I don't either. Yeah. But the the thing is always kind of hard for me and our family is the fact that our youngest is that's her birthday is uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, Not really sure exactly what the, uh, the, the plans have not yet fallen in place yet. We're not sure what's going on. So. Yeah, mine are dependent on a lot of things. Also, I only have Wednesday off, so oh, that makes yeah, yeah, makes it difficult. Yeah, okay. it's okay to do something tomorrow night, but yeah, you know yeah, what? Hard to do anything on New Year's Day. We should probably then um, just wait until the next episode, and then we can talk about whether we did have a great New Year celebration or not. Or not. <laughs> so mine, mine's already going to be awesome. I can tell you. Yeah. Well. Okay. There you go. We're so happy for you. Uh, yes, we are. Very. Can you tell? <laughs> hey, you know. Hey, listen. I get to celebrate one holiday at least right right around this time of year. Everybody else is enjoying it. I was working. I'm not working for change. There you but, go. Tell me, uh, Dana, when is the Jewish uh, New Year? Uh, good question. Sometime in September, October oh, usually. Okay. okay, fair enough. I just wonder. <clears throat> oh, I'm not. A, I'm not. A, I'm not a true, truly practicing Jewish man. True Jew. I'm not a true Jew. Okay. So that's um, <laughs> why the Jew canoes. Whether whether we do or do not have a wonderful New Year's celebration, I can tell you that we are going, some of us are going to have a, a nice celebration with some very special folks who are also in the aviation podcasting space. Uh, the PTUK, Plane Talking UK, they're celebrating their 300th episode um, coming up in about, uh, what, 10 days, 11 days, something like that, um, 12 days? Yeah, yep, yep, 300, woohoo. Is yeah. it on the 11th? On the 11th, yeah, Saturday the 11th of January is the 300th episode celebration of the PTUK, and I'm planning on being there, and uh, I know that, Nick, you're going to be there as well. Yeah, I've booked a hotel room already. It'll be in the Renaissance uh, Marriott Hotel, uh, just on the north side of uh, Heathrow Airport. 
Do you have one of the rooms with the uh, looking uh, out, looking or overlooking the uh, runways and such? I've seen enough airports, thanks. You know what? You can join me for a for a cocktail in my room, and you can look out the window at the airplanes. You're so kind. If you're buying the cocktails, I'll go anyway. Okay, excellent. Um, right. I've made the threat that I may. I'm waiting to see. Yeah, I may come over as well. All right. Well, oh, well, that'd be great. Well, who knows? Maybe the threat, maybe. Exactly what's going to happen so, here. But don't forget get a microphone. Is that a threat? Is that a threat? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you do, make sure you bring a mic. According to. Uh, the no. works. Yes. Yeah. Well. All right. I think that now might be a good time because my producer is telling me we're at the two, two hour mark, approximately, of the uh, show where we do this installment of the old pilot's plane tales get your handkerchiefs ready oh no here we go Thanks, again. yeah the old pilot's plane tales the life of dieter dengler it was the 20th of july 1966 and u.s air force colonel eugene dietrich saw a lone figure waving to him from a clearing below. He was flying on a mission against the Viet Cong over Laos and he continued on for a while before deciding to turn back. He was over hostile terrain in his SPAD, the nickname for the Douglas A-1 Sky Raider that he flew. So why on earth would someone try to attract his attention? He found the spot again, and flying lower, this time, he saw an emaciated man in rags desperately signalling to him. Beside him were the letters SOS, spelt out with rocks. He reported his sighting, but was told to carry on with his mission. But the sight of this man pleading with him not to leave was so compelling, on his own initiative, he ordered two rescue helicopters to be scrambled. When the man was winched up, he could hardly be heard, but he whispered, I'm an American, please take me home. The man was Dieter Dengler. It had been 28 years earlier that Dieter had been born in the small German town of Vilberg in the Black Forest. He didn't know his father since he had been drafted into the German army and killed on the Eastern Front during the First World War. He was close to his family, his grandparents, mother and brothers, particularly after his grandfather, Hermann, had refused to vote for Adolf Hitler and was subsequently paraded around town with a placard round his neck to be spat on by the inhabitants. He was then sent to a mine to labour breaking rocks for a year. Dieter grew up in extreme poverty and was apprenticed to a blacksmith who beat him regularly, something he said that taught him to be tough and self-reliant. It was watching the Allied fighters during the Second World War, particularly one that flashed past his window, guns blazing, that planted the seed for Dieter's desire to become a pilot. It seemed an impossible dream for an impoverished kid in Germany, but he had spotted an advert in an American magazine asking for young men to volunteer for service. 
A family friend agreed to sponsor him, and he was taught English by a retired Wehrmacht general. But Dieter lacked money for the passage. In his spare time, he scavenged metal from dumps and sold it until he could afford a ticket. In Hamburg, waiting for the ship to sail, he survived on the streets with no spare money for food, and then in Manhattan he did the same until he could find a recruiter who would take him seriously. Finally, he was taken into the Air Force. He spent his first couple of years doing little more than peeling potatoes before he was sent to the motor pool as a mechanic and then on to become a gunsmith. Although he passed his tests for an aviation cadetship, he was told that only college graduates would be accepted and then his enlistment was up and he was back on the streets. He worked in a bakery and then managed to enrol in the San Francisco City College where he studied aeronautics. After two years of unbelievably hard work, he applied to the Navy Aviation Cadet Program and was accepted. On his first flight, he knew that air sickness might lead him to being washed out. As the instructor threw the little trainer around, Dieter knew he was going to be sick so he vomited into his flying boot and then put it back on. His instructor could smell something, but with no evidence, Dieter was allowed to continue. After months of training, he finally graduated with his wings and was overjoyed to be sent for training as an attack pilot on Sky Raiders, and then on to VA-145. In 1965, his squadron joined USS Ranger, and after sailing to the coast of Vietnam, he was moved to Yankee Station for operations against North Vietnam. Weapons and military material were being transported to the Viet Cong forces through Laos, and the communists were ramping up their infiltration along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. In February 1966, Dengler was engaged on what were then classified missions to bomb the trail in an attempt to halt the flow of supplies. It was dangerous work. His skipper had taken up the first flight and returned with several panels in his wing shot out. Other pilots had already been shot down. Heavily loaded with bombs and fuel, Dieter followed the other three in his formation northwest until they crossed the coast into Vietnam. The weather was bad, with monsoon rains pouring down, and he had to tighten his position up until he was wingtip to wingtip just to see his leader. The weather was so bad, they were forced to turn away from their primary target, so they climbed up into clear air and set course for the alternative in Laos. They flew across Vietnam and then halfway over Laos, and eventually the heavy clouds dropped away and the weather improved. Dieter could now see the dense foliage below. There was an occasional row of sharp white-looking cliffs rising at least 2,000 feet into the air, but the rest was just as expected, dark, impenetrable jungle. The air looked dry and tinged yellow from crops burning below. After nearly two and a half hours airborne, they neared the target and Dengler put his master arm switch to live. The leader called rolling in 
and he tried to find the road junction beside the anti-aircraft gun emplacements that were their target. He saw his leader's bombs explode and he rolled into a dive from 9,000 feet to attack the same spot. Just as he inverted to pull down, his sky radar lurched as it was hit, and then he needed both hands on the stick to keep control, but he continued to take aim whilst yelling at the top of his voice. The aircraft jumped as the weight of the bombs disappeared, and as he pulled hard to bring his nose up, two more blinding explosions threw the aircraft out of control. With his propeller slowing and the noise of his engine dying away, he decided to abandon the Sky Raider, but with more explosions around him, he changed his mind and would ride the machine down to a crash landing. Seeing a long ridge, Dieter thought that if he could make it over, he would be able to land in the valley beyond. Jumping was now impossible. He was too low. He was also too low to get over the ridge, but then he jettisoned his fuel tanks and the Sky Raider ballooned up over the trees and he just made it. But in front wasn't the clear valley he hoped for, just more jungle, apart from a small clearing and a few huts. He aimed for the little patch of ground, but he had too much speed and it looked very short. Trying to get down, he hit a large tree and the wounded aircraft cartwheeled into the ground. He was thrown around in the cockpit as the aircraft tumbled on. His helmet was wrenched off with the force of the crash and he could smell oil and petrol from the burst tanks. Then in a blur, he watched the entire tail section of his Sky Raider tumble by. Screaming, he was tossed about through endless grinding and tearing until abruptly the world went quiet. Not a sound could be heard. Confused, dazed and hanging upside down, he released his straps and crawled out of the wreckage, stumbling like a drunk to the edge of the clearing. He had survived. For two days he lived on the run in the jungle, strapping his injured left leg with bamboo, before he was found by the local Patet Lao, the Laotian equivalent of the communist Viet Cong. They brutalized him and marched him through the jungle, at night, he was tied, spread-eagled on the ground to four stakes to stop him escaping. By the morning, his face was so swollen from mosquito bites that he couldn't see. He took an opportunity to try to escape, but was soon recaptured. This was when the torture began. They hung him upside down by his ankles and broke a nest of biting ants over his face. The pain of the bites was so bad, he lost consciousness. At night, they suspended him in a freezing well, so that if sleep came, he would drop into the water and would wake choking. At other times, he was dragged by water buffalo through villages, his guards laughing and the locals spitting and throwing excrement at him. Tiny wedges of bamboo were inserted under his fingernails and into incisions on his body to grow and fester. They were always thinking of something new to do to me, 
Dangler recalled. One guy made a rope tourniquet around his upper arm. He twisted and twisted until the nerves ground against bone. Dengler's hand became completely unusable for months. Blooded and broken, he was told to sign a document condemning America for their part in the conflict, but he refused, so the torture intensified. Finally, Dengler arrived at his destination, a prisoner of war camp. He had been looking forward to it, hoping to see other pilots, but what he saw horrified him. The first one who came out was carrying his intestines around in his hands. There were six other captives, four Thais who were captured whilst flying for Air America and two fellow Americans. One had no teeth, plagued by awful infections. He begged the others to knock him out with a rock, then use an old rusty nail to release the pus from his gums. The others had been there for over two years, and as Dengler looked at them, he realised that he had to escape. After a while, the food began to run out, and they were given just a single handful of rice to share, whilst the guards would stalk deer. When they shot one, they pulled the grass out of the animal's stomach for the prisoners to eat, and kept the meat for themselves. The prisoners' only treats were snakes they occasionally caught in the latrine, or the rats that lived under the hut, which they sometimes speared with sharpened bamboo. Knights brought their own misery. The men were handcuffed together and shackled to medieval-style footblocks. Amongst their other ailments, they suffered chronic dysentery and had to lie in their own excrement until the morning. Whilst he was there, Dengler witnessed his captors behead an American Navy pilot and execute six wounded Marines. After several months, food became so scarce that even the guards began to suffer. The prisoners overheard them saying that they wanted to return to their own villages. To cover their abandonment of the camp, they were going to shoot the prisoners and pretend that they had tried to escape. Dengler and the others realised that they would have to fight for their survival, and they began planning an escape. They built a little model of the camp and memorised the guards' movement. They knew that more Patet Lao troops were about a three-hour march away, and they rarely had visitors, so the plan was to grab weapons and take over the camp. Then they would signal to the C-130 flare ship that frequently flew overhead at night. They loosened the posts of the hut by mixing the earth with urine to make the ground soft, and they quietly dug a hole under the fence which they covered with foliage. Their plan was to use the guards' meal time to creep out and grab their rifles when they put them down to get their food. The day before their attempt, Dieter was given a severe beating for stealing the husk of a corn cob that had been thrown to a young pig to eat, even though it was covered in excrement. Dieter was dragged out of the hut and beaten with a rifle butt by one of the guards and then all the others joined in. The next day the plan was put into action, but they had to abort the attempt when two guards unexpectedly failed to turn up at the kitchen. The following day they tried again. It was do or die 
either by gunshot or starvation. Dieter had learned how to undo the handcuffs and released everyone. He was the first out of the compound, crawling under the fence, and he gathered the guns to arm two of the ties who followed him. Then, with the USM-1 rifle in his hands, he made for the guard hut, where they knew they kept a Thompson submachine gun. They didn't want to fire any weapons, since the sound would travel down the valley and alert the villagers there. The next instant, the guards woke up to what was going on and rushed at the prisoners. One fired at Dieter, and the round buzzed past his face, but he squeezed the trigger of the M1 and dropped him with one shot. Then a machete-wielding guard was nearly upon him, but the prisoners kept their heads, killing them as they approached. The guard who had beaten Dieter got to within a few feet, and then Dieter fired point-blank at his bare chest. The blast blew a hole in his body and threw him back several feet. The rest of the Patet Lao guards ran for the edge of the clearing. They shot some, but others got away. Dieter realized that their plan must change, and they would have to try to escape through the jungle. They gathered what they could, but the other prisoners had already gone with the best supplies. Dieter and another American, Duane Martin, limped off into the jungle. Soon their feet were white and mangled from stumbling through the thick undergrowth, but eventually they found a fast-flowing river. After building a crude raft, they floated downstream, traversing ferocious rapids. By night they tied themselves to trees, but by morning they would be covered in mud and hundreds of leeches. Eventually they came across a village and crawled in, pleading for food. Within seconds, Duane Martin had been struck down by a machete and beheaded. Dieter summoned his strength and rushed at the villager who ran away. Dieter escaped and continued his tortuous journey. These were his darkest hours. Little more than a walking skeleton, after weeks on the run, he floated in and out of consciousness. Days later, on July the 20th, 1966, Dengler heard that American aircraft overhead. He summed up his last reserves of strength and waved the parachute from an old flare that he'd picked up in the jungle to attract the pilot's attention. He had been on the run for 23 days, and of the seven who escaped, he was the sole survivor. When the helicopter rescued him, he was taken straight to the hospital in Da Nang. Doctors said he might have only survived for a few more hours. He weighed a mere 98 pounds, that's a little over 44 kilos. The Air Force and the Navy argued over who should be responsible for him, but eventually he was sprung from the hospital by a band of fellow airmen and taken back to his ship. When he arrived on board, Dieter couldn't stand, and yet a friend said he had the biggest smile on his face and tears of joy. I'm not sure how anyone ever recovers from an ordeal like that. At night, Dieter was tormented by awful terrors and had to be tied to his bed. In the end, his friends put him to sleep in a cockpit, surrounded by pillows. It was the only place he felt safe. He recovered physically 
but never truly put the ordeal completely behind him. He said, Men are often haunted by the things that happen to them in life, especially in war. Their lives come to be normal, but they are not. On returning to the States, Dieter settled in San Francisco. He flew for a while with TWA and then as a civilian test pilot. And although he took early retirement, he continued to fly his beautifully restored Cessna 195. In 2000, he was diagnosed with ALS, an incurable neurological disorder. A man who was no stranger to death and had been awarded the Navy Cross for valor in combat, he rolled his wheelchair from his house down to the driveway of the nearby fire station and at the age of 62, shot himself. He was buried in the Arlington National Cemetery with full military honours. A Navy guard was present and a formation of Navy Tomcats overflew his funeral. Dieter Dengler was finally at rest. Wow. What a story. There are some tales which you don't really need to amplify. The tale says absolutely everything. And that, I think, is something that most of us will find hard to imagine, but kind of understand. It must have been appalling. Um, but Dengler was a very brave and very capable and very honorable and fiercely uh, a fierce survivor uh, to get through all of that, his childhood, his, uh, his fierce determination to become a pilot and then survive that amazing uh, escape. Uh, so, you know, his life was full of tragedy. I'm sure there were bright spots that made him, you know, happy to be alive. But I think those uh, months in uh, captivity... Uh, we're just probably too much for him at the end. Yeah. I can, you know, how how can you possibly imagine what what he went through, especially his his time as a captive of the uh the Vietnamese. Yeah, it it's beyond our understanding and scope nowadays when we get ticked off about third world problems. <laughs> Sorry, first world problems. <laughs> Um, you realize the enormity of some things that people have put up with in the past, and it puts everything kind of back into perspective. Yep. Yeah, because they have to, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I found that a very hard story to tell, actually. It took me quite a few takes. Uh, you know, I kept choking up. That was very, very, very touching. I mean, it's, it's yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of speechless. Okay. Well, as you said, sometimes less is more. Yep. So I think we should move on then and continue with our feedback. And uh, the next one we have in the folder is number five from Teresa. Uh, English, please. 
she says. Hey, APG crew. Um, let's see. Now I'm not sure how to read this. This is Dana's friend, yes. Oh, yeah. I can read it for you. Dana, do you Dana have access to uh, uh, number five? I, sh- I sure do. I have five. I'm just hoping that my on Skype too bad here. So far, I can right. hear you now. Okay. So. <clears throat> okay. Hey, APG crew, as I can hear her voice in my in my mind. During the 404 era episode, my showing of an angry face while listening to it live was mostly def- most definitely in error two, <laughs> with a squee, you know, a smiley with a tongue sm- uh, sticking out, and no. Was not angry with my good friend, Captain Dana, either. Ha. While I was listening to you live, I was running errands and threw my phone in my purse, which must have accidentally knocked up against something. Oh, sure. the old, the old accidentally, 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 yeah. accidentally knocked up. <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> I think the phone anyway. was knocked up, not Teresa. <laughs> right. The phone. Yes. Anyway. I also work for Acme in the IT department and have been listening for you for quite some time now Uh because of me. Uh, It's amazing to hear your side of things. So please keep up the great work in giving the rest of us a different perspective on all things aviation. Well, I hope we're at least 50%. Well, that was me adding that, by the way. While I was at dinner with Captain D and his lovely bride later on that evening, which was a great was great fun as always. We got talking about international flights and potential language barriers between the pilots in the air traffic controllers. Whenever my husband and I have a few days off, we check the flight loads and take off where, whatever, wherever, wherever we can find with seats, whatever plane. Uh, let me re- say that, Josh. You should like do something about the alcohol. Just hide it. <laughs> what alcohol? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? <laughs> Whenever my husband and I... It's been a long day. Leave me alone. Whenever my husband and I have a few days off, we check the flight loads and take off on whatever plane we can find with seats. Anyway, I thought... And that should say anyways. Anyways, I thought English was a universal language spoken throughout the world. So I just had to Google it. I'm not sure how accurate the source is, but here's what I found on the topic. In 1951, when the international air travel really started to take off, the ICAO, International Civil Aviation Organization, recommended that English be the standard language for aviation communications. Why English? <clears throat> uh, at this time, the U.S. and U.K. manufactured and operated the majority of the world's aircraft. Uh, native anglophones consider yourself lucky however do pilots and controllers speak english only on the radio nope ikao aviation english is a recommendation not law also uh, although english is common we often hear other languages on the radio atc controllers in the canadian province of quebec are famous for speaking both french and english a friendly properly accented bonjour montreal senator did i do that right liz Bonjour, Montreal Center. Oh, uh, she's from they, Toronto. She wouldn't know. <laughs> uh, she's from Canada, though, so she probably can do A. She can probably do a better A than, than yeah. I can. I've never I heard of it. I thought it was uh, Montreal. 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 Montreal.
Uh, when, when checking in, we'll let you know how you prefer your French. In the interest of aviation safety, I'm I toast. Sorry, do carry on. I'm sorry. I didn't hear what you said. <laughs> I don't it's know. not important. What, nobody I none of us did. Well, good morning. <clears throat> All right. See. Oh, okay. Here we go. It's easy to understand the English in different countries. Uh, no, let me say it again. Is it easy to understand the English in different countries? It's challenging, but everyone tries to follow like KO script to minimize problems. Occasionally, a heavy accent or a fast talker will throw a wrench in communications. They've obviously talked to New York Center. Uh, a simple request of saying again or speak slower will usually help clear up this confusion. Except in New York Center. Exactly. Exactly what I would say. Some, sometimes even we have trouble understanding. What <laughs> yes, they don't speak English and huh? really fast. Yeah. What? And they never slow down. Uh, so, anyways, uh, speak slower. You'll usually clear up the confusion. Even ATIS broadcasts above following follows the script. The information is presented in the same order at every international airport. Flight crews know what to listen to, listen for, and can pick out the uh, important information. The more you know. Enjoy, and I hope to get the chance to meet the rest of the crew at some point. Sincerely, Teresa B., the nerd in IT. Teresa B., the nerd in IT. <laughs> I like that. That's like Just a, a quick point there. All of that came from, or uh, when no, you started talking about, here's what you found on the, yep, came from Aerosavvy's wonderful blog, Ken Hoke. Um, yep. If you're not already following him on Twitter or his blog, aerosavvy.com, he has all kinds of great information. So, Please check out Ken Hoke's wonderful yeah, stuff. Yeah, she was wondering if that was a reliable source, and we can all hear her say, yes, yes, it is a reliable 100%. source of information. <laughs> we don't. We all know Ken. Uh, great blog, Aero Savvy. A-E-R-O Savvy. Uh, yeah, and you know we've talked about it many times on the show, that communication is so important. In fact, a couple of the accidents that Nick and I were covering in news dealt with communication, intercockpit communication. But uh, – Inside the cockpit, outside the cockpit, communication is also just as, if not more, important. Important. Um, so uh, that's why a lot of us, especially as native English speakers, kind of um, uh, are not exactly thrilled when we go to places and they're communicating on radio frequencies in a language that we don't understand. And as as uh, Ken says, you know, it's not it's not law it's a recommendation we think it's a good recommendation that everybody be on the same page so we can hear what everybody else is saying um that's my say it goes it goes both ways too though you know i think it's probably more of a frustration here in the united states where everyone is used to speaking english all of the time mm -hmm. and then you get uh crews in from a country where english is not their first language and there's a lot of non-standard phraseology that happens sometimes and that can be just as confusing oh so, i agree yeah i think i think all of this I think all of us agree with you, Steph, that uh, we need to be careful about not getting into slang and um, casual communication, try to make it as professional as we can, because we do have other people or people from other countries. Uh, English is not their native language. And when we start throwing that crap at them, it's hard for them to understand. Yeah, I can imagine they're all trying to figure out what's good day. Good day. Yeah. Because we, we all, and I know that's like Nick's, one of Nick's, uh, um uh what's what's uh um pet peeves pet peeves yeah that's Ooh. pet peeves yeah let me see yeah, if I can everybody find adds yeah. extra stuff to the broadcast like see ya like what, what, what's that 
Yeah, but that, I mean, I don't like it either, but I'm thinking that they probably understand that that's some kind of a salutation or something at the end of a conversation. It's just the stuff that's non-standard, like instead of clear for takeoff, on the roll, here we go, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff is... Uh, stuff that doesn't contribute to situational awareness right. when it when it should. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, well, so very interesting, Teresa, and... Uh, yeah, your explanation for throwing the phone in the uh, purse and it accidentally sending that um, emoji. I believe it. I believe it. Sure. We'll have to meet we'll have to meet up at some time, Teresa. At some point. I'm sure it'll happen. Okay. Uh six. I've seen Atlanta, I've ever seen Atlanta long enough to meet up with anybody. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like she's a traveler. Texas and Lashock. Uh, greetings, Captain Jeff and APG crew. Hope all of you had a good Christmas and Happy New Year. Still enjoying the sixth day of Christmas. Is that right? Sixth day? I think it is. Anyway, uh, I had a chance to, uh, I had chance find, I had chance find on the interwebs. Uh, coming, a chance find? Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, enter your own letter or word. Coming across this story of a guy who was on a flight and knowing there was going to be a launch while they were in the air, picked a seat and got a shot of the new Boeing Starliner as it launched. It wasn't a very successful launch. The photo seemed a bit blurry to me, but it's still pretty good or pretty cool. Excuse me. So now I ask you in your flying careers, have you found yourself? By the way, we'll put a a link to this in the show notes. You can see a beautiful picture. Um, They must have done some some nice uh, Photoshop or some, some photo editing software work on you. Maybe not. They might not have had to do too much to that. I mean, based on the time of day and their altitude and yeah. I mean, they probably did a little bit Beautiful of saturation. Though, uh, oh, yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Truth, truth be told. Yeah. There may be some Photoshop in here, but I had a friend of mine that was flying a night freight. I took an actual uh, photograph uh, at the same time. Nice, nice dawn launch. So, it's Their photo fun. looks better than mine, if I can get that pointing the right direction. Oh, did you have mine? A, is, oh, you, you took I saw one? while I was on my commute to work, but I had to wait to take a picture until I stopped. For oh, that's right. That's right. Anyway. Um, well, you know what? I, I, I have no problem with enhancement. Um, <laughs> that's, what that's what she said. That's what she said. Okay. Um, so, uh, where was I here? <laughs> Now I got to find. I think you I were reading the article. Somewhere. I was. I was reading this article. I'm just not sure at what point I stopped reading the article. And well, you, um, you read. Um, okay, I gotcha. So now I ask you: In your flying careers, have you found yourselves in visual range of the Cape while a launch was occurring? Take care. Best wishes in the coming year. This is Texas Anla Shock signing off. And uh, I have not had the fortune of being at the right place at the right time in my flying career uh, yet. Um, I I always hope that I'll be flying around the Florida Peninsula at the time that it launches starting off the the Cape, but I've not been, you know, as I said, fortunate enough to see that myself. I think you're going to have more luck if you're somewhere between North Korea and Japan, aren't you? There you go. I don't fly out there very often, though, either. So (laughs) I may not make it. Lots going over there, Jeff. I mean, wouldn't be able to speak the language navigate anything yeah if we were over there flying our jet speak english we'd we'd be in big trouble anyway if we had our mad dog over there yeah that'd be a major (laughs) wrong turn at some point yeah yeah yeah, that's what josh just said a map shift 
Yeah, a huge map shift <laughs> and somehow great fuel efficiency. Um, anyway, so uh, beautiful picture. We'll put that in the show notes. And uh, Steph, did you actually uh, – was it moving like really quickly through the sky or was it kind of in slow-mo or – Somewhere in between. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, from my perspective anyway, because I'm so far away from uh, distance wise, I don't know how many miles that is from Cape Canaveral or to me, uh, but Quite a ways. it's a ways. So I, I think it actually gives the sense that it's probably moving slower than it actually is. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the contrail stuck around for a really long time. You mean the chemtrails? The chemtrails. Yeah. Hope wow, that's chemtrail to the next level right there. Yeah, I hope everybody our... was wearing their special masks to keep from inhaling that stuff. Yes. All right. Um, moving on to Captain Steve. Uh, let's see. So it's an article that he's given us a link to. Innovative TaxiBot, which is a hybrid electric aircraft tractor now used in real Lufthansa flight operations at Frankfurt Airport. Of course, this article was back in 2015. He goes, yeah, I know the article's a bit old, but my question is, then what? The taxi bot got the plane to the runway, and then how does it get back to the gate? Is this unmanned tug going to drive itself back to the gate? What about all the other taxi bots from all the other planes? Now, there's a herd of these things making the trips back to the terminal after each bank of flights depart. Gonna have to keep the eyes open. Well, um, actually, um, doing a little bit more research about these taxi bots. This is the uh, company that uh, uh, T-A-X-I-B-O-T, the uh, brand name. These, you can look at it, at the thing, and it's basically a super tug. Um, we are used to seeing those at uh, major airports around the world. And guess what? These taxi bots are not autonomous bots or even semi-autonomous guess what they are manned bots so each video that i was able to find on the internet there were two people in the cab of this super tug like machine the only thing that was different about what we are used to seeing in our present world in airports that don't have these taxi bots is the fact that this uh super tug device once the nose wheel is in position um, the pilots can activate their steering tillers which actually turns the nose wheel and then that uh, translates into the uh, tug actually moving so you can basically the pilot is con is in control of the tug all the way out to the era to the end of the runway and then at the point where it releases moves out of the way well then these people that are in the tug drive it back to the ramp. Um, and as we've mentioned many times on the show before, uh, I'm not sure that it's as, as efficient as they make it out to be because uh, especially these new generation engines, these uh, pure power, the uh, geared turbofan engines uh, take quite a while to start. Several minutes. Min yeah, right? many, many minutes, like two, three times longer um, minimum than a regular um, non-geared turbofan engine does. And um, it, it requires a certain amount of time for everything to warm up and everything else. So I'm not sure whether or not the, these things are going to make that big of an impact. Now, there are systems out there that are um, different than the TaxiBot systems. There's a, a couple that they mentioned in this ar article. Uh, Wheel Tug is one, and I uh, can't think of the uh, name of the other one, where they, one is actually... 
a system that is built into the airplane itself, and, and it's actually part of the nose wheel mm-hmm. uh, system. Uh, and that's the wheel tug, I believe. And so that stays with the airplane the whole time. So there's no tug required at all. Um, and the, the problem with that system or the downside of that system is the fact that it adds a lot of extra weight. And uh, so you have to kind of consider that when you're deciding whether or not to use this kind of system. Uh, the other system, uh, I can't think of the name. Maybe you can remember, Steph, is uh, one that's actually mounted on the main landing gear but again it has the same drawback of the uh, wheel bot or the wheel there's some other one that we talked about recently too that was like actually built into the yeah in oklahoma somewhere taxiways i don't remember the name of it or whatever but yeah yeah, i can't either something odd it was just a a idea for it but that might be a that might be more viable although the infrastructure needs to be radically it's a lot of infrastructure because it's all underground and everything else so um, I, I like the system where they actually use uh, two uh, large jet engines on the aircraft there to uh, actually push the airplane forward, and then they what? just freewheel out to the end of the runway. That's strange. Um, yeah, it doesn't use much fuel so long as there's no one in the way. So uh, I think the biggest problem is uh, just queues at the uh, at the um, threshold of the runway uh, getting people on it's long queues of aircraft if if we could uh, get that process shortened we wouldn't mm. need any of this fancy technology and have you seen like with the super tugs um how long it takes them to actually mate up to the airplane and then disconnect and everything it's not like it just goes and they're out of there driving back to the ramp it takes quite a bit of time for all that to occur it's yeah. a long mating process yeah a long yeah. mating process gotcha. which i enjoy <laughs> so um at your age it's probably the best <laughs> yeah. oh i was gonna say something so bad i'm, I'm glad j- you didn't <laughs> <laughs> makes my editing post podcast editing so much easier dana yes i'm trying to be kind and gentle kind and gentle hmm. that's hmm. important in many aspects of our lives okay um larry sent us a cartoon Oh, the old geezer, yeah. The old geezer mm. from Tulsa. That's where all the I old say geezers that, are. I say that just as lovingly as possible, Larry. Yeah. Actually, he 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 says, no, it's not old geezer, it's ge- just geezer. Oh, just geezer. Yeah, he's a little sensitive okay. about that. Okay. So. Sorry, sorry. Sorry. My bad. Um, do I read the cartoon, I guess? I, I, I guess yeah. it's best to see it in, uh, in its graphic uh, presentation by clicking on the link in the show notes. But here, I'll do my best. Thanks for booking your flight on Acme Airlines. Can we do anything else for you? Yes, one question. Are there any nuns on the flight? I have no way of knowing that, sir, but why does it matter? Well, I figure it's safer, given that nuns are immortal. I believe nuns die, sir. Say what? I need to go now, sir. Wait, wait. Is Cher on board? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, see, because Cher is... Uh, immortal. A nun? Seems to be immortal. Yeah, she... Not, right, okay. not, definitely not a nun. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Larry Geezer in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'll have to put that in the show notes so people yes. can appreciate it. Yeah, okay. you'll appreciate it more when you see the uh, actual graphic presentation. Nine, Texas Charlie. Captains Jeff, Nick, Dana, St- Dr. Stephen, Liz. Just a small musical token of appreciation for all the hard work you put in every week of the year. Know that everyone on the show and behind the scenes are appreciated more than you can possibly know. Merry Christmas, y'all. Texas Charlie. 
Oh, you know what? I never, I never got the uh, audio for this. It's on YouTube. Is this something that I'm going to get a violation, a copyright violation for? Uh, let's see. I'm trying to remember what this one was. Yeah, probably. Okay. Tell you what, if you want to hear the musical. It's a Merry Texas Christmas. Merry okay. Christmas, you all. I can hear it a little bit. Anyway, it's probably okay. enough. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, if you want to hear it yourself so that we don't have a copyright violation, look in the show notes, click on it, enjoy it. Thank you, Texas Charlie, for that. Um, oh, you know, we were talking about in early, earlier episodes about um, nicknames for airplanes, and several uh, kind of uh, follow-up uh, nicknames were sent in uh, from Ben, Steve, Colin, and Mike. Uh, the BAE-146 has a bunch because it's quite slow, to, despite its four engines. Uh, here are some for the BAE-146. One for sick. One aeroplane, four engines. Need six. <laughs> I guess one for six. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, Quadrapuff. Uh, four fuel leaks connected by an electrical fault. <laughs> five APUs. I think that last one's my favorite. Yeah, five APUs. Four of them are on the wings. The other one is mounted inside exactly. the fuselage. Of course, there is also the Jungle Jet, which is the uh, E-170-190 series. Uh, let's see. IROs here. Uh, what, what were those called? Uh, really? Um, something relief something officers? Relief, relief officers. Yeah. Uh, are either cruise relief FOs at Acme Red South or second officers at Marsupial Airways. The former are nicknamed cruisers. The latter, sandwich officers. <laughs> <laughs> and and of course we all know the f50 is the little motor f***er excuse me the little motor <laughs> I was gonna say, use caution saying uh, this out try loud that again. because it's a little bit yeah. of a tongue if you're twister. watching the video my apologies you will not hear that in the audio <laughs> and of course we all know the f50 is the little motor f***er <laughs> Stop laughing so people can hear me. No, we're both cracking up uh, over here. I know, I know, I know. The F-50 is the little motor foker, while the F-100 is the big motor foker. That's from Ben. Say that ten times fast. Yeah, shoot. Uh, just rolls right off the tongue. Sorry. 737-200 Thunder Guppy from the Loud Turbo Jets. Uh, Embraer product, as we mentioned, Jungle Jet. Brasilia. I've never heard of this one. The Bra. Bro. <laughs> Bro. Well, wouldn't it bra, Brazilia bra? Would it be bra? I don't know. Dana, you've flown the bra, right? The bra? Brazilian? No? I don't hear uh, yes, you. Yes, I have. Okay. What, did and you ever hear of that one? The bra? No, I've always heard it as known as the Brachilia. Oh, Brachilia. <laughs> That's a little insensitive, don't you think? Yeah, um, it is. Oh, and then this one I can't read. Thank you, Captain Steve, for uh, <laughs> putting in. Don't read this one. Uh, let's see. Colin um, says the uh, Cessna Slotation, which has the unenviable reputation for bird strikes on the trailing edge of the wings. <laughs> That's slow. <laughs> Ow. And, of course, uh, the last, finally, for, for the BAE-146, the BAE stands for Bring Another Engine. <laughs> Very good. Not a lot well, of love for the BAE-146, no, is there? You know what it was interesting? I flew, like, once, I think, on it as a passenger, and... The, when the flaps were either extending or, or retracting, or maybe both, it, there's a certain point where they get into their travel where it creates this 
It's like the box of candy that's empty and you blow into it and go, just that weird noise that, uh, like a howling noise or it's like, a, it's hard to describe, but I kind of looked around like, is anybody is else concerned be about that? Because it's really not, not a sound I've ever heard on an airplane before, but apparently they say it's that fine. that's kind of a uh, normal. Perfectly fine. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Liz is warning me. We only have she 10 minutes. To get to number 13. Definitely. You have to get to 13. She said, please do 13. Okay. Well, right, 13 or 12, Liz. Hold on. Let me read the, uh, mm. <laughs> I'm not sure if she wanted us to do 13 or 12. Okay. Can you confirm Liz. Um, she's, she's quickly frantically typing it as we speak and we're still waiting. 13. 13. She combined the, she combined the names, the uh, number and the name. Yeah, 13. Okay. Okay. Well, let's go right to number 13 then, shall we? And this is from Luke. Hi, APG crew and listeners. Happy New Year. This is Luke from a very hot and humid Cairns, Australia. Uh, I found a very cool flight deck video I'd like to share. Um, I found it interesting for two reasons. Uh, the approach, uh, it states that it's one of the most challenging and most spectacular at a place called Paro. So the views are fantastic. But also these guys are not official airline staff or pilots. They do, however, have a very um, entertaining and successful travel vlog. Uh, therefore, I was scratching my head at the, at the fact that they were allowed inside the flight deck. Um, researching online, uh, trying to find out what countries may allow this, really didn't provide much information. So I take it this particular part of the world, um, uh, the rules and regulations may not be uh, as stringent as they are in most countries, but um, I'd be very interesting. Uh, I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on that. Um, and finally, I thought I'd share a second video which takes us back in time to the 80s, uh, where Believe it or not, here in Australia, we had three pilots operating a glass cockpit Boeing 767. Uh, ANSET Australia was the only airline to do so. Um, this was due to pressure from the flight attendants, oh, sorry, the flight engineers union. And uh, these aircraft were operated like this for most of their lives until the, uh, the late 90s when uh, they were uh, at great expense converted back to uh, a standard two crew layout prior to the airline's collapse in 2001. So I hope you find that interesting. Uh, again, Happy New Year, and thanks for a great show. Bye. Yeah, I don't know. What, does anybody know about the rules regarding the cockpit access in certain areas of the world that are less stringent than what we're used to in our part? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it depends on the country's threat level. And if it's low enough and they can don't consider terrorism to be a, a likely problem for them, then I suspect cockpit visits will still be allowed. Which countries? I don't know. Yeah, well, the par Paro is like one of the one of the most demanding approach and landing airports out there, I think, if I'm not mistaken. I think mm -hmm. I've seen some videos on that. We're, and we'll include the uh, YouTube videos that Luke included in That's his a, feedback. The video was from Bhutan, but there was, I didn't get to the point of like actually seeing the, anyway, the cockpit video, but okay. Paro is Bhutan. Yeah. Yeah. Now the one, the one that we have um, photos in our show notes are from the 767 with the flight engineer position. 
And uh, it is uh, quite odd to see that in the 767. And I was thinking when he was explaining, you know, why they had the flight engineer's position, I'm thinking it has to be something to do with union contracts and the flight engineers. And sure enough, that's what it is. So uh, interesting. Uh, Did you notice? Do you notice the picture that most of the overhead panel had been moved over to the side panel? Yeah. That's crazy. The overhead panel hardly has anything on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hardly any switches. See, we used to have this other person managing all of this. Now we just make the two guys do it. And so. you know what's really interesting about it is that I'm sure that they didn't take away any of the automated features of all these different systems. So I would imagine being a flight engineer on the 767 for ANSET was a pretty easy job. Yep. Yeah. And they were allowed to have pretty long hair, too, and a beard. Yeah, they certainly were. How is that possible? Mind you, that was an airline that was brought down by union trouble. So uh, there you go. That's the end of that. Those pesky unions. (laughs) They are. Yeah, exactly right. All right. And uh, I think that uh, perhaps the one that we were really supposed to do was a very similar name. This is from Lucas, the Flying Kiwi, sent us some audio feedback. So let's take a listen. We haven't heard from the Flying Kiwi in some time. And he has some exciting news for us. Hello, APG crew and community. It's the Flying Kiwi. How are you? Um, so I haven't been in touch lately. I've um, had a few things going on. Apparently there's a uh, some kind of a tropical typhoon or something going on when he was recording this. He did apologize, by the way, for the uh, for the wind uh, in the uh, in the recording. He what. had wind? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> he was, never mind. But um, sadly, not much aviation until until very recently. Um, actually, I'm uh, I'm just out walking the dog after having a very sweaty time in the cockpit today, uh, getting my BFR. So I've uh, ticked that off. God. Having to remember how to use the E6 computer again. Ugh. Anyway, so the fact that I have a BFR also means I have a medical. Hooray! So my medical came through. Um, so uh, I'd like to say a personal thank you to Captain Nick and Jeff for all your kind words and encouragement. I really, uh, really appreciated that. It actually got me through some pretty awful times trying to get my medical back. But um, I have my medical and I'm all more ready to go. So I've logged quite a few flight hours this week actually. <laughs> Just trying to get my feet ready for the BFR so I don't embarrass myself. Um, so yeah, um, congratulations on 400. Um, I, uh, I've listened to some of the last 20, I think the last two or three. I'm a bit behind because I've been doing a bit of study. Um, I've been getting out the books for the Garmin um, 650 GTN, or the GTN 650, and the Avidyne Integra. And why am I doing that, you ask? Well, I've sort of... I've decided to double down on the aviation thing a bit. So um, me and two other guys had a rush of blood to the head and we went out and bought um, a Cirrus SR22 uh, G2. <laughs> so I'm now the proud owner of, a, of an SR22, which is great. Um, a beautiful plane, a ZK for New Zealand, uh, Lima Delta Yankee, or Lady as we call her. Um, and she's a great, great plane. Uh, I think it's a 2004 Cirrus, which is got all the bells and whistles, the oxygen and the fiki and uh, all of the GPS's that you could, uh, you could swing a stick at. So yeah, it's a great plane to fly, I've already logged three hours in it. Um, so I've got my rating, but I just uh, need another two 
to satisfy the uh, insurance company because we need five hours PIC, which is great. <laughs> um, and of course that has to be done with a certified instructor pilot, which is a bit of an ask because the nearest one is about, I don't know, two hours away. <laughs> so we either have to fly to him or he has to fly to us. So it's, um, it's challenging trying to get that five hours. But anyway, I'm back in the air. And in my own plane, which is very scary. Although I have TCAS, so if you've got a transponder, you, you should be safe. Um, yeah, so that's the news. And um, I'm huffing and puffing because I've gone on a very long walk just trying to calm down from my BFR. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been good. I hope you guys have been well. Um, I've been catching up a little bit on, on some of the stuff. I've heard the, um, the Firefly references, by the way. And uh, Nick... Um, touch to the nose. I'm, I'm a bit of a fly, Firefly fan myself. Um, I actually have a picture of me and uh, Nathan Fillion, um, if you believe it. <laughs> um, I went to, uh, I think, one of the Armageddon-type comedy things here in New Zealand, and he was one of the guests, and my my partner at the time decided to uh, prank me and get me a photo with the guy. So here's a photo of me and Nathan Fillion doing the thumbs up, like thons, um, which you'll never see because Nathan Fillion looks wonderful and I look like a big pink smudge. <laughs> so that's going to remain buried. But uh, yeah, very nice guy. Um, very funny. Anyway, there you go. Um, well, I guess uh, that's it from me. Just to say uh, thanks for being there and thanks for being an awesome podcast. And um, if you ever come down here, come on down. Um, we've got a nice Cirrus waiting for you. So uh, ribs for Dana, lots of IPA, and uh, and a couple of rides in a very, very fast aeroplane, um, which I've still got to get used to. Whew. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, she is quite fast. Anyway, um, tailwind, uh, keep the blue side up, and uh, 500 feet, caps available. Cheers, bye-bye. He had a need for speed. I think we need to uh, club together and buy Lucas a muff. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, you know, he's probably recording with his phone. He can't even hear any of that, you know, he's not getting <laughs> yeah, that feedback. So. Anyway, so but, first off, let's uh, say congratulations. Yeah, well done, Lucas. Brilliant. So pleased to hear you got your medical back. Well done, Lucas. Yeah, that yeah, was a, quite a long a, road. Quite a. Uh, struggle and uh, we're so happy to hear that um and uh, completing your bfr and then being part owner of this wonderful airplane steph can probably uh, yeah, say something like about steph? that cirrus now oh, you're you're muted and now steph i said i'm a big fan of the cirrus it's a lovely airplane sorry that's because right. i was eating cookies while oh I okay we got you. i didn't want to be we caught you crunching and yeah okay yeah, so is it is it quite a bit faster than most GA airplanes that uh, you've flown? Mm, can be. Um, yeah. I mean, with a tailwind, I've seen 206 knots. <laughs> you guys cheated. Not talking about over the ground, but, you know, like when no, you're coming in for... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, 155, yeah. No, not when you're in the pattern, necessarily. Um, okay. I mean. uh, so, if you open up the taps, though, and try and... Uh, what, what will it uh, top out at? Top out at? Yeah, how fast can you get it? What is that red line at? Yeah, I had, it's been a while since I've actually flown it, so I'd have to go back and look. But really, mm. fast. I think it's in the one ninety. I was gonna say I was gonna say one eighty, but yeah, probably close to one eighty. 
Okay, well that's that's pretty nippy. I mean, if you're if you're gonna, what's that? Is a Mooney faster? I've never flown one. Oh, perhaps. Okay. Stephen is a Mooney faster, mate. <laughs> Wait, oh, did you get his answer? He's not there. Oh, Just when you need him. All right. Um, and 500 foot caps, is that, um, the standard or is that like a, an enhancement, uh, is, is 500 feet the standard? That's standard. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. So he, uh, followed up by saying, I now have the rating for the Cirrus and 10 hours on type. It's a beast. I overhauled or outran a, a Cessna caravan the other day coming out of a parallel airport, which got a few comments from controllers who were trying to fit me behind. I was 10 miles ahead. <laughs> Loving the show and almost caught up. I hope things are better for you, mate. Merry Christmas. So, Thank you. Everything is fine over here, Lucas. And uh, always great to hear from you. And that gets us to the point where we cannot do any more feedback for the show. It leaves us with a couple of uh, ones that we weren't able to get uh, for the next episode. And uh, so for those of you who are new to the show and you want to learn more about it, and especially the best part of everything here, which is our community, please head over to the Airline Pilot Guy website, airlinepilotguy.com. And uh, there, so what do we have there? We have information about the crew, the community, merchandise. We have plane tales. If you want to get even more information about Nick's wonderful uh, plane tale, uh, plane tales, uh, please look at that. You can also... Um, uh, sign up or subscribe to that as a separate uh, podcast, even if you'd like. If you want to, you know, skip all this stuff. Um, let's see what else. Coffee club or coffee fund, uh, etc. Lots of stuff over there on the website. So please check it out. And uh, we're also on the social meds. We are. Am I not muted? Good, not muted. Uh, you should head over to twitter.com and uh, search for us using the handle at APG Crew. You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. We are all there on both of those social media platforms and we look forward to seeing you there as well. And if you'd like to get even more involved, please check out Slack. Oh, yeah, Slack. Oh, hang on a sec. Oh, this is embarrassing. Hey, hello. Hello. Can you get me a roll of toilet paper? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll get you something in a minute. Come over here and tell us about Slack, okay? APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. Okay, thanks Hillel. Now go back and, and wash your hands. Please. Where's the soap? That, it's on, near the sink somewhere. I think he needs to wipe his bottom first. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to go into that. Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah, but it, you're right. That's kind of obvious. And uh, let's see. Oh, I should take off this uh, picture here and get us back to our normal view. Oh, yeah, there he is. Um, so uh, we also want a, a big shout out to our producer up in Toronto. Hey, what a nice. Thank Good you very day. much for all the hard work making us uh, look and sound as uh, professional and knowledgeable as possible, which is pretty much uh, a small miracle every time. 
And also, thank you, Josh, for uh, joining us. Hope it wasn't uh, too uh, strenuous a, uh, uh, an exercise on your part. No, I appreciate it and enjoyed it. Okay, excellent. And until next time, wishing all of you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye, you guys. We'll see you guys later. day.